Hey, deserving listeners, this is chapter three in my attachment theory deep dive. In this episode, the main focus that I'm going to focus on is how do we use attachment theory to improve our lives? This is the most important thing to any good psychological theory, any good psychotherapy theory. I mean, it helps us to understand people. It's a good model for conceptualizing people. But really, the only reason why we're even conceptualizing people or ourselves or other people's experience is because we're trying to make positive change. We're trying to help. We're trying to help others. We're trying to help ourselves. We're trying to help our relationships. And so this episode is is about that. It's about the clinical side and also the personal side to that. I'm also going to talk about how I use attachment theory to help my students and my supervisees, not not just my clients and not just myself. We're also, you know, going to talk about what did Bowlby recommend we do with this theory to help other people cuz late in Bowlby's career, he had some very important things to say about how we can use his theory to help other people. Also, how should we use attachment theory with our spouses or our children? Um, Well, actually, those might be another chapter entirely. I'm not quite sure, but eventually I'll get to that. Um, I've said this in other chapters, uh, but it bears repeating, is that I use attachment theory every day. I use it with my clients, with my students, my supervisees, my wife, myself, my cat, my dog. Um, I use it in all those areas every day. I'm thinking about it all the time. It's useful in so many different areas. It helps me to be a better person. It helps me to make a positive difference in the world, which is my humble mission in life. So this chapter is about how to use attachment theory, how to use it to affect change in yourself and in others. I'm going to provide a step-by-step process that I have found to be useful. Again, what did John Bowlby recommend we do? I'm going to provide research on the brain. Um, I'm going to talk about the several different forms of therapy that, that actually use attachment theory formally including my model. And I'm going to talk about the various presenting problems that lend themselves to using attachment-based therapies. Um, This is going to be a long episode, several hours, so let's get into it. Welcome to the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. I'm really sorry to you non-patrons out there, but this episode is just for patrons of the podcast. All the chapters of my attachment theory deep dive are only available to patrons. So if you want access to this and the other chapters and the hundreds of other episodes that we've made along these lines uh, of that are you know premium episodes, you have to become a patron of the podcast by going to patreon.com. That's patreon.com. Someone just emailed me the other day and was like, so your episode recently just stopped suddenly. It just, like two minutes in, it just ended. And uh, I, I don't know what's going on. And I'm like, it's because you need to be a patron of the podcast. <laughs> so, so do that now. Uh, when you become a patron, I'll send you instructions on how to access this episode and the hundreds of other episodes that are really our best episodes. So do so now. All right, welcome to the Patron Zone patrons. Love you so much. So let's get into it. Well, let's look first at what John Bowlby said. He was perhaps the first to really formalize attachment theory into therapy formally. I would say that uh, attachment theory had been used inadvertently by many forms of therapy prior to Bowlby uh, asserting it, but, um, but Bowlby laid out some very specific things. He thought that therapists should, quote, provide the patient with a temporary attachment figure. 
provide the patient with a temporary attachment figure. Bowlby wrote this in 1975, long time ago. This is music to my ears. It's so great to it's so great to find a theorist where you agree with nearly everything they say. <laughs> but and I found just a little side note here. I found Bowlby after I had already basically uh, discovered or somehow um, come to these conclusions from other theories like humanistic theory and psychodynamic and object relations. There's definitely some underpinnings there. And when I finally got around to really looking into Bowlby, I was like, oh my God, not only is this in line with what I'm thinking, but it really expands and furthers my understanding of what I, what I had sort of the tip of the iceberg um, from my own experience. So anyway, so Bowlby was like, the therapist needs to be an attachment figure. It's a temporary attachment figure, but that's what they need to be. He wrote that this temporary attachment figure would provide a secure base from which the client could explore both the self and their relationships. Bowlby wrote this in 1977. This is similar to his observations of infants and Ainsworth and the others. When they would observe infants, they would observe the infant sticking close to their primary caregiver when they are scared and uncomfortable. And that provides them with the safety and security upon which they could go venture off into the room, play with toys, but then occasionally look back at the primary caregiver for reassurance. And if something scary happens, they run back to their parent, and then that provides them the secure base. And then if you fast forward over 25 years, the child goes further and further away from the parent but always returns to that secure base. When they're an infant, when they're, say, six months old, nine months old, they're pretty much 90% of the time wanting to be with the parent. Fast forward a few years, they want to be with the parent uh, in, in pro, you know, physical proximity, say, 20 to 50% of the time or something. By the time they're 15 years old, they want to be with the secure base if everything went well, say, 5% of the time and so on. But they need that secure base. That's what children need, and that's how they develop well. And with many people, they did not get that. And so when they come to us as therapists, they need us to do that for them. They need us to provide them with a secure base that they can come to however often they see us and then venture off into the world and explore themselves and other people and then return to us. The idea goes is that if there's enough uh, rinse and repeating of that, then the client will uh, uh, be able to cope with life, do better with emotional regulation, less psychopathology, and be more independent, so to speak. Now, we don't want to say that independence is the goal because that's humanly impossible and unhealthy. The goal is to have a uh, a healthy sense of dependent of a healthy balance of dependency and independency. So Bowlby described this process of attachment based therapy as a joint exploration, quote unquote, with a trusted companion. Bowlby wrote this in 1991, just before. Well, this is published just after he died. So this is totally humanistic. It's totally interpersonal. It's totally object. You know. Contemporary object relations, dynamic, 
relationship focused. It's just great. I find this to be a very simple explanation for a very complex process that every therapist should be thinking about. Okay, so looking at Bowlby's six goals of psychotherapy, he laid out six goals. These are goals, not phases, but they are somewhat sequential, so you could consider them as kind of phases. But really, all these goals should be considered in every session, in my opinion, and I think to Bowlby's opinion too. Number one is to establish a secure base, as I've already talked about. When you provide the client with a safe relationship, the client is able to explore their own emotions and their experiences. So you know how I was talking about how infants will explore the room and toys and then return to their parents. And then as um, clients, the you want to provide a secure base so that they can you know, do their exploring. Well, part of that exploration is exploring difficult emotions and scary emotional processes for themselves. So that could be in therapy. In therapy, you, the analogy you could think of is your client is sitting on your couch and you are providing a secure base the same way a parent would when you bring an infant into a strange situation. And the client stays safe at first to make sure that they're safe with you and that you're, you're going to be there. And then uh, through the sessions, they're able to explore other parts of their personality, other parts of their emotional experience, other parts of their narrative, knowing that you're right across the room there to help them. Uh, this is all very important when you're thinking about therapy, and it's important that you give them attunement. They're, they're secure that you'll be there when um, they need you to help them, but they're also uh, sure through demonstrated attunement uh, that you are really paying attention. So it's not just that you're there physically, you have to be really with them. And attunement, remember, this is being sensitive and aware of the emotional experience of the other person, namely the client, and also responsive, meaning that you respond well to the needs of the client. That's the first goal is establish a secure base, and perhaps maybe the first goal. Number two is to explore the attachments in the person's lives. So you want to explore past relationships and current relationships. And this is quite a lot of content. They might want to talk about uh, their mother, they might want to talk about their divorced husband, or they might want to talk about their current spousal relationship. This is a lot of, so it's a lot of exploration. And I love this about Bull because he didn't say fix their relationships or anything. He just said a major goal in attachment-based therapy is to just explore in the same way that children in this strange situation will explore their environment and play with toys and then return back to their parent to get that secure base. And exploration and safety and exploration, the agency of that and the the discoveries that will happen from that, the competence that is developed through that is a major part of attachment-based therapy. So you don't have to provide skills in this in this goal. Number three goal is to explore the therapeutic relationship. This is really great. I love that that Bowlby point pointed this out. So they're not you're not only just a person who provides a secure base so that the client can explore the world, but the relationship that you're in with the client is part of that exploration for the client. The client can explore 
how they feel about you, how they, how they feel in relation to you, their emotional experiences with you, whether it be happiness or sadness or anger or hurt or disappointment or joy or warmth or whatever. That's very important because it's, it's in vivo, as they say, it's right in the moment. It's very helpful to uh, talk about what's happening right now, here and now sort of stuff. This is very interpersonal, very intersubjective, very psychodynamic, and there's a long tradition of this sort of work where you focus on the relationship. For example, you might say something like, um, and I do this frequently, not all the time, not as much as I think other people might, but I, I do it, um, I'm sort of in the middle somewhere, because a lot of people never do this. The client might be saying something like, so yeah, I, I'm just feeling really alone and like no one really cares about me. And so I might, you know, explore that for a little bit. And then I might say, well, when you're sitting here with me right now, do you feel, do you still feel alone with me? And I'm open to whatever they say. They might say like, yeah, I still feel alone because I feel like you're not really paying attention to me or whatever they say. So I'm exploring what's happening right now because I want them to be able to uh, notice what's happening in the moment and also be able to articulate that and also give me a chance to attune to that. So if they say, yeah, I feel really alone because I feel like you're not really listening to me, then what a wonderful opportunity for a corrective experience if I can attune to that, where I can say like, oh, so you're, you're angry at me and probably hurt that... I'm, I'm not paying attention to you, and that, that must feel really awful. I'm really sorry about that. The, the power of, uh, of a moment like that is tremendous and much more powerful in general than them talking about outside relationships and you maybe suggesting that other people care. To demonstrate careness in the moment is um, much more powerful in my experience. Careness, is that a word, careness? Caring would probably be a better word. The fourth goal that Bowlby laid out is to link past experiences to present ones. So this is helping clients to see the connection between past relationships and their current relationships and their current reactivity. This is very important for people to understand, including therapists need to understand this for their own lives. For example, let's say a client has trouble being vulnerable with her husband, and because you and the client, the woman, you've already explored her past relationships, the two of you have already established that she was mistreated as a child and thus has trouble trusting others with her vulnerability. So this link between her mistreatment as, as a child and thus her inability to, to trust others with her vulnerability, uh, you, if, you, you know, if you've established this very logical link between that and her current inability to be vulnerable with her current husband, this link provides a rational explanation for why she is having troubles and, and why she's misinterpreting things. It normalizes, it conceptualizes. This is an interpretation in the psychodynamic sense. Knowledge is power. It gives you direction. And it helps her to see how her distrust is not rational to the situation. And she can, be, and she can begin to take that leap of faith that is to actually trust her husband that she can be vulnerable and thus... Um, make her relationship better. Um, you know, you, you're talking with her and she's like, well, I don't feel, I don't feel comfortable being vulnerable. I don't feel comfortable telling my husband that he hurt my feelings. I, that sounds 
awful to me. Uh, I, I don't think he would respond very well to that. And the trick is, is complicated. And I'll get more into this when I talk about couples therapy. But it, one, the beginning of this process is she has to learn how to trust. Uh, two, we have to engineer her relationship with her husband so that it is trustworthy. Because sometimes the husband is not going to respond very well. So it's not like you just tell the person, and Bowlby didn't really get into this, but later people would get into this, but the um, just the prescription of like, well, try to trust other people. That's great. That's, that's one step. And often that can work because people usually have compassion when you give them a chance. But there are some people who are just as, have been just as mistreated as children as your client and thus have a humongous defensive structure to other people's vulnerability. They, they might feel blamed. They might feel criticized. They might feel overly responsible. They might feel overwhelmed by their spouse's discomfort. And so all those things have to be taken into consideration. But anyway, so, so the fourth goal is to link the past experiences to present ones. The fifth goal that Bowlby laid out was to revise internal working models. Remember I talked about in a previous chapter about working models. In this phase or goal of therapy using attachment is to essentially uh, you help people restore their lives and their relationships and themselves. You're trying to help them to reinterpret things and to have a different working model of who they are and a different working model of other people that's that's more healthy. For example, instead instead of having a working model of pathological independence, meaning that the, the client has a working model that they don't need other people, they're fine on their own, that other people can't really be trusted, other people are kind of incompetent and stupid, and they can do things on their own. The therapist helps the client realize that they do indeed have attachment needs and dependency needs, and that they only trick themselves into thinking that they don't. And therapy can help with that. That takes a long, long time. It, it starts with some awareness and interpretation, some cognitive work, but it's experiential. It needs to be solidified through experience with the therapist and other important relationships that the therapist can help guide. So it's not just pointing out to someone, you're pathologically independent and you need to recognize your dependency needs. Certainly that is a phase, that's a part of this, but the 99% of the of the benefit comes from experience while you as a therapist are helping them to interpret and guide them. So for example, with a pathologically independent person, you have to help them understand that they're pathologically independent, and then you have to help them to open themselves up to vulnerability and dependence. And then as they do that, they're going to have defenses. Things are going to kick in. Like they're going to say like, well, that didn't go well. So I'm going to go back to my pathological independence. Or they're going to say like, well, I can't really trust anybody because no one's trustworthy or whatever. Some, some defense mechanism is going to kick in because they develop this early in life as, as an adaptive defense to difficulties growing up. And their lives have been engineered or have shown them that their working model is accurate. So it doesn't, just pointing something out to someone doesn't usually work. You have to, you have to guide them through each individual micro experience that they go through. And this can take a long time. So Bowlby didn't really go into this much. Um, all this language is really my language. Other therapies have provided more depth. My own version of therapy, interpersonal therapy, Rogers, relational psychoanalysis, 
like I've been talking about intersubjective, dynamic, and other long-term relational therapies have also gone into, into more depth on how to revise internal working models. So this leads to a question here about whether or not as therapists we should confront distorted or uninformed working models in our clients or when to confront them. Because I've basically, you know, been talking about that, you know, pathologically independent person, you're confronting it, you're saying that working model isn't working for you. So let's let's try to change it. You're, you're telling them that their working model is wrong. Now, uh, so when do we do that? Well, Bowlby recommended that therapists not confront their clients on their working models. At first, they should accept the working models of the clients, even if the clients exhibit distorted views of self and other people. Bowlby wrote about this late in his life in 1988. This helps to establish a secure base. So remember that first and foremost, you have to have a secure base from which clients can return to and explore themselves and other people. So they need to feel secure in you. They need to feel like uh, you're a safe place to be. After that, then um, you can begin to examine the client's working models and perhaps confront them on them. So secure base first, confront later. This is a genius thing that Bowlby thought of uh, way back when. And the sixth and final goal of attachment-based therapy that Bowlby laid out is provide a safe haven during times of distress. So it's extremely important. So this is basically implied in some of the other goals that he talks about in terms of being attuned and being a secure base. But I think he felt it necessary to really highlight the importance of this, is that particularly during times of distress, they clients need us to be a safe haven. They need us to be particularly safe and particularly attuned during those times. And this applies to many concrete things about therapy, like making sure that you're on time. I've talked about therapists who are often late to their own offices to see their clients, or they let their clients go too long prior, so they they start late. This is not a safe haven. Uh, also distractions like looking at your stupid fucking cell phone as a therapist. Uh, you also need to be an ethical therapist and you need to preserve confidentiality. These are concrete things that we all know about, but there are more uh, non-concrete things like being attuned, being uh, safe, being a nice person, being likable. And that's very important during times of distress. When the client is going through difficult times, they, they need that the most. And then over time, what happens, in my opinion, in my experience, is that clients will internalize that relationship so that they can bring that safe haven with them outside of therapy. Sometimes clients will say things like, so I was going through this situation, but I heard your voice in my head telling me that I'm okay. This is something that is an internalization and a wonderful phase of therapy for, for people. The relationship is, is so attuned and so strong that they have internalized it and they're bringing it with them. The same is true about parents with their children, right? At first, children can't soothe themselves. But over time, with enough attunement and enough care, the child can go to kindergarten all day long and when they're upset, they can call upon their parents' voice and say to themselves, I'm okay, I'm safe, I'm a good person, this is okay. 
that's an important step to development and an important step to therapy. Okay, so that's what John Bowlby recommended in his later career regarding how to use his theory, attachment theory, in therapy in general. Now, let's go into my version. So this is based on attachment theory. It's also based on parts of psychodynamic theory like defenses, particularly protective identification, object relations concepts. It's also based on interpersonal and intersubjective theory and therapy. It's based on systems theory, behavioral theory, I suppose to some extent cognitive and schema therapy. It's based largely on humanistic therapies like Rogers and Satir and phenomenology and and others. So it's based on a lot of different things. But the central feature that I'm going to highlight in this is the attachment um, theory uh, concepts. And one could say that attachment theory is at the foundation of everything that I do in therapy, whether if I'm talking about defenses, if I'm talking about how a system operates, I'm often uh, at, at baseline, I'm thinking about attachment. In fact, just as a side note, one of the things that I've come to over the years is whenever I try to explain systems theory, which I've done in other episodes, other deep dives, the important a foundation to all that is attachment within the family system. That once I combined attachment theory with systems theory, uh, wow, I just had one of those throat burps, you know. It's always weird that you can talk at the same time as a little little sliver of gas is coming up from your stomach. That must have been pleasant to listen to. Um once you combine attachment theory with systems theory, then systems theory really becomes much more understandable to me. Because without attachment theory, without the uh, understanding of the need for attachment within family systems, then it's kind of hard to understand why systems operate the way that they do. Okay, so research has actually looked into how attachment theory is related to all this. So researchers have looked into effective therapists of all different types of schools of therapy. They've looked into, you know, cognitive behavioral therapists, psychodynamic therapists, gestalt therapists, solution-focused therapists, and researchers have, have tried to figure out, well, what are these people actually doing that is helping? Is it the theory or is it something else? And what they found is that regardless of what sort of school the therapist is coming from, effective therapists are attuned to their clients. So I just want to highlight this before moving forward because it's extremely important to understand that if you're going to use attachment in your therapy with your clients, you don't have to change your theory. You just have to use your theory with attachment in mind. You can be a CBT therapist while being attuned to your clients. You can be an attachment-based CBT therapist. So I just want to put that forth before moving forward. Uh, and you can also just be an attachment-based therapist. You could frame everything that you do, as, and that's what all you have to do is say, I'm an attachment-based therapist. Sometimes people say that the only sort of real attachment-based therapy is emotion-focused therapy, but that's not true. So... Don't associate – it annoys me that whenever I talk about attachment-based therapy, people will be like, oh, EFT. And I'm like, yeah, that's one. <laughs> there are many other types of therapy that use attachment and have been using attachment. They, they might not have known they were using attachment, but, but they were. 
having said that, I love EFT, but I just consider it a bit of a, an annoyance that people sort of reduce it to that. It's the same, you know, just as a side note, it's, a, it's the same annoyance I get when I hear people say, oh, that person has borderline. Well, you have to use dialectical behavior therapy or, oh, that person has uh, trauma. They have PTSD. Oh, you have to use EMDR. It's like, yeah, that's, a, that's one option, but there's so many other options, right? It's sort of be like, oh, I'm looking for a job. Well, you better move to Houston because they have jobs in Houston. It's like, well, yeah, there's jobs all over the place. <laughs> like Houston isn't the only place that has fucking jobs. Like Houston has jobs, but it's not the only place. Okay, so let's get into my key elements of using attachment in therapy. And this is something I think about all the time. Again, not just with my clients, but with everyone I interact with, including myself. I, I try to engineer my life in this way for my benefit, honestly. So the first key element here is attunement. We've already talked about this. Bowlby talked about this. It's a good recommendation by Bowlby. You have to be attuned to your clients. This is very important. This is not just saying, okay, I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to be attuned. It's it's pretty complicated. You have to be able to really listen. And you therapists out there, you know what this is cuz you've you've phased in and out of this. Sometimes you're distracted, some clients are difficult to attune to, and other times you feel like you're really in the groove and you're really listening and you're really paying attention. You have energy, you've had your cup of coffee and you're ready to go. You're comfortable, you're not distracted. You like this client and you're really in you're really in the groove with them. This is attunement. You're really listening. You're you're reacting authentically. So that that's important. It's like this is where humanistic therapy, Rogers, Maslow, these other people come into play because they they found this to be very helpful too. Being attuned is not just mirroring someone's emotions. It's not just reflective listening. It's being in the room, in the relationship with the client. In the same way that a parent, if you are a caregiver, you're a parent and you just robotically mirror your children's reactions, that's helpful on some level, but it's much more helpful when the child notices that you're really in it, you know, that you're invested, that you're real, you're a real human being, you're, you're authentic, you're acting normally. It feels so much more safe when we have that, regardless of the relationship, whether it's our parents whether it's our therapist, whether it's a coworker or a friend or a spouse, when we pick up that the person is really there, it feels so much better because it means that the person isn't hiding, you know, it implies anyway, the person isn't hiding anything, they're not faking it, it's real. Now, this is complicated because you could have authentic, real reactions that are really destructive to the client, like, I fucking hate you, for example, or that thing you just said was fucking stupid. So you have to do a lot of personal work so that you don't actually have those, quote-unquote, authentic reactions. Now, you can get angry. You can exhibit anger and disapproval as being authentic. You, you know, For example, you could say something like, wow, as you talk about that, I have to say, I I have a, I'm having an emotional reaction to that. I'm, I'm pretty, pretty bothered by what you're saying. It seems kind of scary to me. Things you're saying, they're kind of scary. So it's okay to say stuff like that. But again, I'm not going to go into full detail on how to be a therapist, but it, it, being authentic, being real, really listening, being present, being with their experience and avoiding being distracted, avoiding your own biases, listening phenomenologically, 
trying to really get at their experience. This is attunement. And then obviously responding well. So you're really listening and you're responding well to the situation. The other day I was talking with a client and he was telling me something about someone else in his life. Oh, he was talking about his parents and the parents were doing things that were um, cringeworthy. He was talking about how his parents were doing this and that and um, and it it was pretty it, – it wasn't horrible, but it was – a story in which I had a authentic reaction inside of me of just like, oh man, I can't believe your parents did that. It's just so cringeworthy. Ugh. And I cringed physically and I scrunched my face and I noticed that. I said, oh, you're scrunching your face right now. That's that's your authentic physical reaction. I'm just like, oh man, that's hard to hear that your parents did that. And that's authentic. That's that's me attuned. I'm really listening. I'm in the moment. I'm reacting authentically. And I attunement is 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 also the process of mirroring someone else's emotions. My client was telling me at the time that what his parents were doing were cringeworthy. And I was expressing that I was with him in that experience. So this is a very complicated thing, of course. Just you know, however long I just talked about that isn't sufficient. You can't just go off into the world to do this. This is something you learn through experience and supervision and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so number one is attunement. Number two is foster the attachment. Bulby talked about this too. He didn't really word it in this way, but number two is to foster the attachment. Um, it's the same in supervision. It's the same in rom- romantic relationships. It's the same in parenting. It's the same with coworkers. So, this is, but this is important to recognize. This is where interpersonal, intersubjective comes in. Is that it's important to recognize that this attachment is co-created. So the client isn't attaching to you, and you aren't just fostering attachment. Both things are happening at the same time. You're both becoming attached to each other. The therapist's attachment issues are involved. The therapist's needs are involved. You can't avoid that, and both people contribute to the co-creation of this attachment between therapist and client. This means that we sometimes have to help clients con- contribute to the attachment. So sometimes sometimes clients won't contribute to the attachment of the relationship. So sometimes you have to actually engineer that clients to actually make themselves vulnerable and to trust you and to contribute in that way. You also have to contribute yourself. And anyone who's been in long-term therapy, whether you're a client or a therapist, and in, and it's a good relationship, you know that the relationship develops. It's a human relationship between two people, or couples therapy, three people, or family therapy, five people. It's, it's a very um, uh, particular thing. Every long-term client I've ever worked with, I have had a particular relationship with that person that is unique to that person that gives me a, a very unique vibe in the same way that every um, family member and I have a unique vibe. My relationship with my wife is a extremely unique relationship that I have never had with anybody else. And clients are the same. So you need to help to foster that. Now, some people hearing this, I'm guessing not many of you, if you've listened to other episodes, might be thinking, well, what, what about fostering uh, fostering too much dependence what if the client is too, quote unquote too dependent on the therapist there are 
rare cases where this would be a problem. But in general, it's it's hard to be too dependent on your therapist. Now, a therapist can not know what they're doing and abuse that, right? Like if the therapist decides to terminate therapy midstream just because they don't know what they're doing, or if the therapist starts to uh, demand or command the client to do certain things, like, um, you know, like there's a, there's a very common dynamic between client and therapist that can happen sometimes with passive aggressive or dependent clients where they will uh, sort of defer to the therapist and the client will seem incompetent. And so the therapist, so there's a great dependence there and the therapist will be seduced into giving directives. Oh, I think you should do this. I think you should do that. I think you should do this. And the therapist will uh, be using this dependency in a destructive way. Uh, But any good therapist who understands personality and dependency understands that that seduction is happening, and they, they notice that those urges inside of them to label this client as incompetent to to have urges and follow through with them to solve the client's problems and will shy away from that and create corrective experiences trying to bolster the client's competence. Anyway, so number one, attunement. Number two is foster the attachment. Number three is provide corrective experiences. This is a term from psychoanalytic psychodynamic theory of corrective emotional experiences developed in the 40s by Franz and Alexander, I believe. I'm trying to remember that off the top of my head. It's been elaborated on since that time. It was originally narrowly defined in a really limited way, but essentially providing a corrective experience is with clients in the attachment sense is you're basically reparenting them. Now, reparenting therapy, there's a form of therapy called reparenting, and I'll get more into that later. There's a... So... You know, some of you might be wondering, well, isn't there a thing called attachment therapy and reparenting therapy? There is. It's a very narrow, horrible, unethical form of therapy, and they ruined, they tainted the name of attachment by doing this. And I'll, I'll go into full detail on all that unethical mess, but, but I'm not using it in that sense. So some of you, you know, I've been using these, these comparisons or metaphors that with, Therapy, it's it's the same as parents, right? When the the parent enters the strange situation, the child has a secure base, they can go play with the toys. You provide the secure base for your clients, and the client is able to explore relationships, explore their own emotions. And it's reparenting. It really is. I and I really consider it to be that way. Now, I'm not looking down on my clients and, and saying, Oh, little Johnny, even though they're forty five years old, they're forty five years old and I treat them as such. But the vibe that I'm giving off is definitely parental is now parental, not in the sense of telling them what to do or disciplining them or telling them when bedtime is or something like that. That's not the side of parenting I'm talking about. The side of parenting I'm talking about is the attunement, the love, the attention, the um, kind of one-sided relationship, right? Parents don't confide in their children. Children are supposed to confide in their parents, uh, parents don't require their children to be attuned to them, but we should be attuned to our children. And it's a very similar process. Now, what ends up happening is people, through these corrective experiences that need to be experienced, this is, this is the part I've been talking about how attachment-based therapy, 
some of it is awareness, but the but most of it is experiential. Most of it has to happen in reality over time. You have to rework someone's working models. They have to be demonstrated. You have to prove it to them, and it has to be done over time with lots of tests and twists and turns and mistakes are made and recovery is made and and through that process a working model can be can be adjusted or altered to the point where the client has better self-esteem, less reactivity, less triggers, happier relationships, you know, better ideas of other people. Uh, that's that's very important. So the corrective experience is, to me is is like a major part of it, of that of that process in therapy. Um you know, when we when we work with kids, we're and I'm going to get into this. No, I already got into this in the theory episode. Remember when I talked about mentalization, the ability for children to hold mind in mind, to understand other people's minds accurately? Well, when we provide corrective experiences for people, they're their ability to mentalize in, increases. One, their anxiety goes down so they can actually pay attention to other people. But two, they, through your authentic reactions, they begin to rework their working model so they can actually predict other people's behavior better. A lot of people emerge from childhood with the working model that other people are not to be trusted and that other people are nefarious and dangerous and, and don't care. And un, you know this uncompassionate, discompassionate, um, and uh, when in reality that's actually not the case. The vast majority of people really do care. The vast majority of people really do have a heart and do have compassion. And through their ex- client's experience with you, you can demonstrate to them that their old working model doesn't apply to you. And then they can generalize that to the rest of the world. And this is what we call a corrective experience. It's an experience that corrects for the past. So in this uh, step, we should talk about reenactments because that's a pretty big part of this whole process. So reenactments have a lot of different names. We can call it transference, countertransference. We can call it Enactments. Sometimes instead of just reenactments, they just say enactments. Sometimes it's called recreations. Freud called it the repetition compulsion. He he was the first to observe this. He observed that um, we repress our difficulties and then act them out instead of facing our our inner pain. And so we will reenact our past difficulties as a way of avoiding our inner pain. And clients, the, the idea goes is that clients recreate their past attachments with their therapist. And this is core to the transference idea, right? So if a client grew up with an abusive parent, then they will re- try to recreate that relationship with you, the therapist. They might either abuse you or they might consider you to be abusive. Or if they grew up with a parent who was very rejecting and abandoning, they might do things to socialize you to abandon them and to reject them and to judge them, or they might actually um, reject you. And or they might see things that you do as very abandoning when in fact you're doing nothing to abandon them. So this is a reenactment. It's a transference recreation of a past relationship. So this process is normal and it's indicative of a progress in therapy because in order for this to happen 
previous work has to be done to strengthen the relationship so the client actually subconsciously feels safe enough safe enough to reenact these issues with you. And so it's a good sign. It doesn't always feel great as a therapist, but as I always say, people come to therapy because they have problems. And so if you're not ready for that, then do something else with your career. So this reenactment has a number of functions, uh, but two of them I want to highlight is that it's good for assessment. So when clients recreate these or try to recreate these dynamics with us, they are going to produce emotions in us. They're going to make us feel a certain way. They will do things. It's all subconscious. It's not no client wants to recreate an abusive relationship with someone. It's all subconscious. But when they interact with you in this way and they're they're really trying to muscle you into recreating this relationship, you're going to feel a certain way. You might feel afraid. You might feel anger. You might feel critical. And it's going to be particular to that client and the flavor will be particular to that client. And so this, if Tra- if you have a good enough training, good enough practice, you'll notice this in yourself. You're like, wow, I feel really critical of this client. I have a lot of, I've had a lot of critical thoughts run through my head with this client. This must be evidence of an effort on my client's behalf to recreate a past relationship that I know that they had with their father, who was also very critical. So... I, I'm I'm realizing that now. I'm realizing okay. The 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 feeling I often a, a heuristic to follow, which is almost always the case, is this really horrible feeling I'm feeling right now as a therapist is one percent the feeling that my client felt when they were children. You know, so if I feel if I feel very afraid, if I feel very critical, if I feel very whatever. And, if I feel very judgmental or rejecting, then my client must have experienced this in spades when they were younger, whether it be themselves or their parents treated them this way. So it's, it's very helpful because a client can describe to you what it's like for them and they can describe to you how they felt as children, but nothing informs the therapist better than through analyzing the countertransference that you're feeling. You're like, okay, I know my client said that she was criticized as a child, but boy, do I really feel it now. I really get a clear sense of what this is. And again, a lot of therapists, as I often rail about, will uh, not know this process and they'll just terminate with the client because they don't understand what the fuck is going on. Then The other thing that these reenactments are very helpful with is they provide an excellent opportunity for corrective experiences. Again, we're in the third uh, principle of attachment-based therapy, according to my opinion. And reenactments provide the, the perfect opportunity for a reenactment. So, for example, a, a preoccupied client, so someone who's very afraid of losing people and they're very focused on making sure that other people stay close to them because they were chronically and inconsistently abandoned and, and rejected as children – so this client, through while working with me, they might try to merge with me. Like the client might email me frequently and demand responses. Like, yo, you didn't get back to me. And when I establish boundaries, the client might interpret this as a massive rejection. Even though I'm not really rejecting them, I'm just following the standard of practice and my own policy. And because of that, the client then attacks me. 
the client tells me that I'm a terrible therapist or something, you know, or shows up late or, I don't know, is distant in therapy or something, some version of anger and punishment to me. And then I feel rejected. I feel concerned. I feel like, what's going on? I've, you know, something's happened in therapy. And I know that uh, the client went through difficulties as a child, and therefore I interpret the situation as, oh, the client must be recreating something with me. And the client is putting uh, putting me to the test, and they're testing me to see if I will collude with their projective identification, with their working model being enacted, re, you know, reenacted, with the repetition compulsion. They're testing to see if I will be different, if I will be caring, if I will be compassionate, if I will be attuned. So this client is trying to recreate this past relationship through transference, all those other theory words. And instead of colluding, I'm aware of it and I do and I and I intuit what needs to be done. And I I might do something like um I might validate their feelings. I might I might say something like, so I'm really getting a sense you're really distant lately. And the client says, well, I don't know. I don't, I don't feel that distant. And I might say, well, I think it's possible that when I drew boundaries about emailing me all the time or emailing me frequently, I, I have a feeling like I might have hurt your feelings. And the client's like, well, yeah, kind of. And then I would say, I'm really sorry about that. I did – that was – not my intention. I really did not want to hurt your feelings, but it makes total sense that your feelings would be hurt because you, you really like therapy and it feels good and you're just reaching out to me and I drew this boundary with you and I feel like I didn't really do it in a compassionate way and I'm really sorry about that. So that kind of attunement is, and that kind of awareness as a therapist about the countertransference and the reenactment uh, compels or and the ability to react well, to respond well through attunement to the client and to respond maturely will provide a corrective experience to the client because the client is getting like, whoa, my therapist really cares. My therapist apologized. So just to get micro on that, apologizing to a client, saying you're sorry as a therapist, truly sorry. I'm sorry that I drew that boundary. I'm sorry that I made you feel that way. I have I don't I don't have any excuses. I'm I'm just sorry that that happened, and I I I really didn't want that to happen. And maybe and I probably worded it wrong. I probably should have done X, Y, or Z. That experience for a client can be mind blowing. They might not have ever been apologized to by anybody significant in their life, especially in a way that is open-hearted, taking full responsibility, really caring for the other person, while not requiring the other person to agree or to also fall on their sword or something. So that is a corrective experience. And what it does is it reworks their working model of themselves and other people. By doing this, they are changing their working model themselves. They're like, well, so... I'm worthy of being apologized to. I'm worthy of being cared about. That's new. That's interesting. 
that raises my self-esteem, that makes me feel better, that makes me feel more stable, that makes me less socially anxious, that makes me less depressed, that makes me less dissociative. Also, my working model of other people is being modified here too. So other people listen to me, they care about me, they are mature, they are stable, they can apologize. That's mind-blowing. That's a big difference because my working model up until this point was that no one really cared and that everyone's defended and that and that apologizing means that you're weak, but I see that my therapist is apologizing. That's actually a very strong thing that they're doing. They seem very confident in themselves. They're we're reworking working models of the self and other people. And this can have profound effects. And so as people are recreating, you have to um, use that uh, opportunity as a corrective experience. Okay, so that was the third principle of attachment-based therapy as far as I'm concerned. The fourth is to educate your clients about attachment theory. I find this to be very helpful. It's It can only go so far, as I've been saying, but with all my clients or I don't know, most of my clients, I would say, in the past five years, at some point I explicitly educate them about attachment theory. Now, I'm not going to get a whiteboard out and explain it over the span of a half an hour, but I've gotten it down to like a couple minutes. Like I might say something like, so I just, have you ever heard of attachment theory? And they're like, no. And I'll say, well, so the, the theory goes is that as children, we need to be, uh, we need to experience good enough attachment. And if we don't, then we have to develop some coping skill. And based on what I know about your childhood, you were mistreated, you were abused. And from my observation of you, as a child, you must have decided that you couldn't depend on other people. And you decided that when in doubt, you should run away. When in doubt, you should just avoid relationships. When in doubt, you should just be like, I can do this on my own. I don't need other people. I've observed that in your behavior with your marriage now. And so I can sort of extrapolate from that that as a child, you, you must have developed that, that policy in reaction to the abuse that you're going through. Does this sound accurate to you? The client will almost always say, yeah, that sounds accurate to me. I'd be like, okay. So when you have those chronic feelings of wanting to leave your wife— and then never leave your wife because, uh, and you're and you're confused about that. You, for the past five years, you've had these intense fantasies about leaving your wife, and sometimes you have, but you you always come back to your wife. The reason is is because when you feel attachment injuries, when you feel hurt, when you feel distance between you and your wife, when you feel criticized by your wife, the the place that you go to, learned from your early childhood, is to run away, and at the very least, run away in your mind and to just be like, I don't care. I don't care about her. I, I'm I'm just biding my time to get divorced. Now, I'm not saying that you can't divorce her. You, you know, it's your choice. Do what you want to do. But the attachment style you exhibit is what we call avoidant attachment style. And if you want to look it up on the internet, there's a lot of good information on the internet because there actually is. This is one of the few things on the internet that I think it's because it's simple enough for people on the internet to understand and perhaps not popular enough to be bastardized like sociopathy or narcissism. So you can actually tell clients, just, just Google avoid an attachment. You'll probably get a good, some good information on it. And so I'll tell clients to do that, and I'll say, 
So uh, the trick is, is that we have to help you to understand that people can be trusted. And we also have to help you to, instead of knee-jerk reaction, always running away and distancing yourself, we have to help you to be vulnerable and actually reach out to other people and tell people about your hurt, which can give them the opportunity to really take care of you. Because I'm guessing that other people don't even know that you care. I'm guessing other people, you've tricked everyone around you into believing that you don't even have emotions or you don't even have attachment needs or you don't even need support. I'm guessing you've tricked everyone effectively around you that that's the case. And uh, that's attachment theory. What do you think? And they're like, oh my God, that's totally, totally right. And so every session we will use that language. They will say something and I'll be like, oh, sounds like avoidant attachment to me. This all has to be based on a strong relationship in which the client trusts me and likes me and and I know them well enough to know that they can handle, because it's kind of a criticism. I don't consider it a criticism. Uh, I think everyone has elements of, of attachment insecurity, whether it be avoidant, preoccupied, or a combination. It's totally normal. It's not a criticism. It's like criticizing someone for having a foot. It's like, well, everyone, most, most people have a foot. Uh, so, or criticizing someone for having a heart, let's say. Every living person has a heart. And so... Uh, every living person has attachment insecurity. So there's nothing critical about it. It's just normal. But it can be taken as a criticism, so it has to be built upon a strong relationship. But anyway, so I will educate people about their attachment theory. It, it helps to provide a guide to the whole process for them to be conscious of what's happening. And the fifth and final principle in attachment-based therapy, in my opinion, is you have to manage your countertransference. I've already kind of talked about this with the reenactment bit here, but really it bears its own principle here, is that when you are challenged with countertransference, when your own vulnerabilities are touched upon, it's going to challenge your ability to be attuned, compassionate, responsive, aware, sensitive, authentic, etc. So, you have to be you have to be really uh, mature, and you have to be very good at no, noticing your own countertransference. It's a tall order. It is literally decades of therapy and self exploration to get there. And saying taking a class on countertransference in graduate school, I'm going to tell you, it's not enough. This also, I'm also including in this principle the idea of repairing ruptures, because ruptures are often heavily involved with countertransference. And so you have to be able to repair ruptures effectively. Okay. So in conclusion on my five principles here, number one, we have attunement. Two is foster the attachment. Three is provide corrective experiences involving reenactments. Number four is educate your clients about attachment theory. And number five is manage your countertransference. So there's only five principles. Sometimes my list can be very long. This one isn't so long. So in conclusion, to become more securely attached in general, not just with you, the therapist, but for clients to become more securely attached to, to everybody and to just feel that way all the time and to reap the various benefits of secure attachment, such as better relationships or lower psychopathology, clients must experience an attuned, safe, attentive, responsive, intense, meaningful long-term relationship with their therapist. So I'll just say this again. 
to become more securely attached in general, and to reap the various benefits of secure attachment, such as better relationships and lower psychopathology, clients must experience an attuned, safe, attentive, responsive, intense, meaningful, long-term relationship with their therapist. Very important. And all of this apply. I've been mainly couching this within individual therapy, but it applies to all forms of therapy. Couple therapy, obviously. Family therapy, obviously. Group therapy, less obviously, but also true. Groups have to be have to feel safe. The group in in good group therapy, the group provides a secure base, and you as the group therapist can engineer that between the members by also being that you you model that yourself and you facilitate that yourself. Um. With non-individual therapies, I should point out that uh, some of the principles are altered. So with family therapy, for example, you're not necessarily the, you're not the only person in the room that is helping any individual in the room. So, uh, so you need to be attuned and you want to foster attachment between you and the clients, but you also, even more so, need to help each the other people attuned to themselves and foster attachment between themselves and man- managing their own quote-unquote countertransference, their own reactivity to other people. So this is, this is the power of couple and family therapy, is that a couple comes to me and they both have difficult histories. They've both been mistreated. And they are actively recreating those relationships with their spouses and they are he- they are already heavily involved emotionally with their spouses. It's already a long term relationship. It's already intense. It's all- already very meaningful. And then I help them attune to each other. I help them with their attachment to each other. I don't necessarily need to attune myself to them. It's so much more powerful for them to attune and attach to each other. Now I can provide that secure base, and to some extent I have to on some level. But the therapeutic value of helping actual people in their real lives attune to each other and attach to each other and feel safe with each other and to support each other and to interpret each other's attachment behaviors more accurately is incredibly powerful. Along those lines, I think I I should speak a little bit about attachment specifically when it comes to couples therapy. I've already talked about this before, but it bears summarizing, which is that when I do this with every client, individual, family, couples, groups, is to get micro on an, a sort of exact thing that happens in therapy. I find myself frequently talking with clients about how they can facilitate attachments between them. Again, I've talked about this before, but again, I just want to repeat it. So you have a client who. So often clients will come to us, particularly the clients that I see, and they'll talk about having been in some kind of conflict with someone, whether it's their spouse or their kids or their parents or a teacher or a friend at school. And it's up to us as attachment-based therapists to really interpret that through the attachment lens. And when I have a good relationship with the client, I, I will remind them about attachment and I'll remind them about the purpose of this whole thing. Because through conflict occurs 99% of the time because of an attachment injury that is being touched upon or an attachment injury that's occurring in the moment. And with both people, by the way, often, so if a, if a 16 year old comes to me and complains about a 
conflict that they had with their parent, then I will interpret, even though I don't know the parent, I'll interpret what attachment injury the parent is, what attachment injury for the parents being aggravated and poked at. And I'll have the client, the teenager, to ask about the teenager's attachment injuries and, and their reactivity. But I'm always seeing that interaction through that lens. And so, for example, let's say a 16-year-old comes to me and he's like, yeah, I got into this big fight with my mom and um, I was wanting to uh, stay out late and she said no because my grades haven't been very good lately and I got super angry and I slammed the door and then my mom chased me into my bedroom and told me that I shouldn't slam the door and I told her to shut the fuck up and then she uh, told me that I was grounded for two weeks and and then I, I stormed out of the house a half an hour later and I smoked pot with my friends and I didn't come home till the next day. You know, fuck my mom for being that way. Okay, this is a very common story. <laughs> As I'm saying it, I'm just like, geez, how many times have I heard this story? Uh, any parent out there who's struggling with your teenagers, understand that it is normal. <laughs> uh, your neighbors with teenagers are having the same problems. They're just not talking about it. Um, so anyway, so I'm talking with a 16-year-old. I don't. I, this isn't family therapy. I, I don't know the mother. But I will say to him, okay, let's back up here. Let's look at the situation. So let's start from step one. You asked your mom if you could stay out late. Yeah, I asked her because, you know, I'm 16 years old now. I should be able to stay out late. And my all my friends are able to stay out late. Okay, I get it. I get it. I get it. Okay. So when you're asking her that question, I, I think that there's two levels to this. One is, is that there's a pragmatic level, which is you want to stay out late and you want to have fun with your friends. But there's this other level of attachment where you want your mother to trust you. You want your mother to th- to think that you're capable. You want your mother's approval. You want your mother's grace. You also want to attach to your friends. You don't want to lose out. You don't want to miss out on bonding with your friends. Uh, and the 16-year-old might be like, huh, well, I guess so. Be like, yeah, I think, I think that's a pretty big part of this. And then what I also think happened was that um, when your mom decided to put her foot down, she's just trying to do her best. And I I can't really speak to exactly her decision-making regarding parenting, but she's probably just trying to do her best. And uh, she said to you that, no, you can't stay out late. Now, I don't, again, maybe she's worried about something. Maybe she was hurt by something you had done earlier. You guys fight a lot. I don't know. And in that moment you had a lot of different feelings. Tell me about your feelings. Well, I was super fucking angry. I was pissed off. I, you know, I wanted to burn the house down. Oh, okay. So you're ang- angry. That totally makes sense. What did you feel before the anger? What did you feel before getting angry? And they'd be like, well, what do you mean? I didn't feel anything before getting angry. I was pissed off. It was bullshit. They'd be like, well, when your mom said, no, you can't go, there, there was probably an intermediate step between you, you, your mom saying that to you and you feeling anger. There might have been an intermediate feeling. And over time, I can help them to become more aware of how they have hurt feelings a lot. And teenagers are really, it's really hard for them to admit that they have hurt feelings. Um, it's hard for adults too, but it's really hard for many teenagers. Some teenagers are good with it, but many teenagers are not. I've had... 
I've worked with some teenagers, individual teenagers for years, and they could never admit that someone had hurt their feelings. And it was a pretty big barrier to helping them. But so let's say that this teenager is like, yep, uh, yeah, I guess, I guess it was hurtful to my feelings because, um, I wanted to go out and I'd be like, well, let's, let's look at this a little closer. So what else could have hurt your feelings in that moment? The teenager is like, well, I don't know. And because with a lot of teenagers, you have to guide them pretty thoroughly through this. So I might say, well, if I was in your shoes and my mom didn't let me go out, I'd be hurt by the fact that my mom didn't trust me. I'd be hurt that my mom wasn't listening to me. I'd be hurt that my mom seemingly didn't really care about my well-being. I'd be hurt that my mom seemingly is is implying that I'm immature and and not old enough to handle such things. I'd be hurt that my mom didn't care about my needs as uh, to socialize and to bond with my friends. I they would hurt my feelings. And then I would probably get angry because when I when I when people hurt my feelings, I typically get angry after that. And the client, you know, teenager, depending on the situation, you might say something, like, oh, well, maybe, I don't know. Or you might be like, yeah, that's totally, I think that's totally, you know, depending on the situation. And then I might be like, okay, so let's look at what you did with that hurt and then subsequent anger. Well, you ran to your room and you slammed the door. Now, I get why you did that. You're angry. You're trying to send a message. You're trying to send a message to your mom that you're angry and that you're hurt. That makes sense to me. Now, what, how do you think your mom interpreted that behavior? Well, I don't know. She's such a bitch. I don't get it. You know, like, okay, let's, let's slow down. So let's say that you're trying your best and you're, you're trying to love your child, but you're also trying to be responsible as a mother. And in the process of that, your kid turns and runs into the room and slams the door in your face. How do you think that's going to make you feel? Well, I don't know. I guess she'd be pissed too. Yeah, she, she and she was angry, right? She exhibited that she was angry. But what do you think she felt before the anger? Well, I don't know, hurt? Am, am I supposed to say hurt now? And I'd be like, yep, you're supposed to say hurt. Your mother, in all likelihood, I don't know her, but I suspect, if she's like all the other humans on the planet, that she was really hurt in that moment. To have her son reject her in that way, to run away and slam the door. I'm guessing your mother was hurt. And then her attachment needs, because she she loves you and she wants to be close to you, but she also has this need to be a responsible parent. And so in that moment, she uh, she was hurt because you were at least visibly rejecting her. You were shutting her out, and that hurt her feelings. Now, I'm not saying her reaction was good, but I think this helps us when we understand attachment, we understand emotions— then we understand why you and your mom tend to get in these kinds of arguments but that end up blowing up like this. And, and so I, we kind of walk through all these steps, and, and, and over time, clients can learn like the process of attachment and emotions and reactivity and how, and this is where systems theory comes into play, how attachment and reactivity and emotions are interactive, it's, we don't just experience emotions in a vacuum. We don't react within a vacuum. We don't have attachment experiences in a vacuum. It's always in a context of a relationship. And so in order to really treat people with their attachment needs, you have to treat the system. You have to treat the interactional system and how 
your client is affecting other people and how that is processed by those other people and how behavior comes back at your client from that position. Now, if you're treating couples and families, then you can treat the family. But even if you're treating individuals, you have to do this too, in my opinion. And I find it to be profoundly powerful and useful and transformative when you do that. So I hope through that demonstration you understand what I mean by uh, using attachment in therapy. Okay, so let's get into how to use attachment theory to improve your life and improve your relationships. Number one is, this is my list, number one is to become aware of your emotions. This might sound like an obvious thing, but it um, is worthy of its own step here. You got to be aware of your emotions. This is your key to understanding attachment for yourself and others. So becoming aware of your emotions. The first level uh, of understanding is to understand your primary emotions or your fundamental emotions. These are the first emotions that we feel. And often people without some level of education or practice or experience, they don't necessarily know the first emotion they feel. Often people understand the, their secondary emotions better. So the first emotion, the primary emotions, and there's various different debates as to what constitutes a primary emotion, but this is this is my version of it, is hurt. So there, there are essentially three different kinds of, of primary, three categories of primary emotions. Number one is the category of being hurt or feeling pain or feeling sadness. I'm putting sadness in there, obviously sadness is different than hurt, but essentially this this category of emotion is things that make us feel bad, you know, ouch or oh, I'm demoralized. It's just it's a negative feeling. And the second primary emotion category is fear and anxiety. And the third is happiness, contentment, joy, um, whatever you want to call that, you know, good feeling. So those are the three primary emotions. Sometimes people include surprise and disgust, uh, which is which is fine. But I I kind of think of them as uh, just variations of fear and pain. And there's a lot of debate in our field about that. But I think for attachment based discussions, it's usually sufficient to talk about hurt slash sadness, uh, and then fear, and then happiness. And then secondary emotions are things like anger, which is in response to being hurt or afraid, or jealousy, which is in response to being hurt or afraid. So often people will think, when I, so often when you ask people how they feel about something, they'll be like, well, I was pissed off. I was, I was frustrated. I was irritated by that. And if I say, interesting, I mean, just as a side note, sometimes I'll, I'll even say, oh, so it sounds like you were angry. They're like, no, I wasn't angry. I was, I was just irritated. I think there's just different language systems around emotion. But, and I think actually if, if you're trying to help yourself, uh, it might be helpful just to admit that when you're irritable, you're angry. We have this cultural notion that emotions are bad and that having emotions mean that you're weak, including even anger. I mean, anger is the least quote-unquote weak emotion, but I find that a lot of people have a hard time admitting to themselves that they have emotion emotion, which is just pure anger. Uh, even more difficult is for people to admit when their feelings are hurt or when they're afraid. And so 
So a lot of people will say, <clears throat> yeah, that made, you know, it made me irritable. And I'll say, were you, it sounds like you're angry. And they're like, oh no, I wasn't angry. And then I'll say, okay, well, you're irritable. Um, you know, why were you irritated? They're like, well, so I come home from work and my wife and my kids had already eaten dinner and it just pissed me off because it's like, uh, I work hard all day and what, they're just going to like eat dinner without me. That's bullshit. And I'd say, oh, okay. So you, you noticed you were ir- irritated by that. What was the first emotion you felt when you walked in the door and realized that they had eaten dinner without you? They'd be like, oh, well, I was pissed off. I was like, yeah, okay. Well, what other emotion were you feeling at the moment? They'd be like, I don't know, nothing. I'm not, I wasn't feeling any other emotion. And I'll say, well, you know, given enough time and relationship and exploration, eventually I want them to get to the realization that actually the first emotion they felt was hurt. They walked in the door, they saw that their, his, he saw his family had eaten dinner without him, and his feelings were hurt. He felt rejected. He felt um, alone. He felt like the family didn't care about him. That's hurt. That's pain. That's sadness. And then... In, a re- in response to the hurt, he got angry and would uh, visibly become irritable and angry. He didn't express his hurt. What he expressed was his anger. And becoming aware of this primary secondary emotion is extremely helpful in attachment-based self-help because understanding when our feelings are hurt gives us a window into our attachment needs. So, so again, we, he notices he's angry. He might not even recognize he's angry. He might just say like, well, I, I told my, my wife that it was bullshit. And I, you know, went to my, uh, room and I slammed the door and I, you know, so sometimes people will recognize the behavior and then a layer down from that is, Oh, I was angry. And a layer down from that is, oh, I was hurt. And then a layer down from that is, oh, I felt rejected. I interpreted it as me being rejected from my family and, and being um, unseen, unheard, uncared about, which threatens my attachment needs, which is an attachment injury, which naturally leads to hurt, which then leads to anger, which then leads to slamming the door. So becoming aware of your emotions is extremely important. And this is, this is hard to do. Uh, a lot of us, like I said, in our culture, we're taught to deny our emotions, to be afraid of them, to think that that's a sign of weakness. Um, I mean, just, just as an example of this, I, you know, I'm a professor, and so I teach uh, trainees as they're becoming therapists. And these are arguably some of the most emotionally aware uh, emotionally non-shaming people on the planet, these students, right? They're training to become therapists, and they like emotions, presumably, or at least they're more comfortable with emotions than the average person. And sometimes in class, we'll be talking about something, particularly classes where we touch on personal issues, and one of the students will start to cry as they talk about pain they've been through or some grief they've been through or stress of being in graduate school, for that matter. And inevitably, the student will try to stifle their tears, and if the tears do come out in, fr- in front of their, their classmates, they'll 
really apologize and they'll be like, oh my God, I'm so sorry I'm crying. I'm so sorry I'm crying. And where did we get that from? Where did we get the notion that one has to apologize for crying, that one should not cry in front of other people, that you're bothering other people for having water come out of your eyeballs when you have an emotion that is normal and human and appropriate to the situation. When did we get that? So even the most advanced emotional people on the planet still have internalized shame around hurt, around general, you know, emotions in general, but particularly around having hurt feelings and being hurt. And this is a massive fucking barrier to all of our ability to understand our emotions and accept them. Because without that, uh, attachment-based self-help is not going to go very well. Because if you, if you don't have an awareness of that, you have no idea what your needs are, and you have no idea how to meet your needs and how to advocate for your needs. Okay, so that's number one, is become aware of your emotions, particularly hurt feelings. Number two is awareness of how attachments uh, trigger that emotion. So this is more of a cognitive understanding of things, but it's related to your own experience, related to your emotions, but it's really a conceptualization of your emotions. So you, for example, you're in a bad mood. You notice you're, it's 1030, you're at work, and you notice that you're just kind of in a bad mood. You're being a little snappy with people. You have some rumination of some negative thoughts in your mind. And you become, over time, aware through practice and education and therapy. And you say, okay, well, let's, let's check in for a second. Let's take an inventory here. Why am I in a bad mood? Well, hmm, you know, I feel, I've been feeling distant from my spouse lately. I wonder if that's why I'm in a bad mood. Also, you know, this morning when I told my kids that they had to do their homework before school because they failed to do it last night because they watched TV, my kids rolled their eyes at me, and that was really annoying to me. Also at work, I feel as though I'm working my ass off, and my boss doesn't really care. No one seems to care, and I feel like other people aren't working as hard, and I'm working really hard. Well, all of these things can be seen through an attachment lens. Feeling distant from your spouse is an attachment injury, which leads to hurt, which leads to bad mood. Your kids rolling your eyes at you is an attachment injury because they're rejecting you. Your, your flesh and blood, your children, your offspring, these people that you have sprung into the world, these people whom you have fed and coddled and taken care of and would take a bullet for, you're just asking for a simple uh, request of them to do their schoolwork, which benefits them, and they're rolling their eyes at you. It's very hurtful. It's, it's a hurtful thing. It's a rejection. It's a, it's a distancing, hostile act, and it feels hurtful. When you're working hard and you're looking at everyone around you and other people aren't working as hard and your boss isn't giving you any appreciation... It feels like an attachment it's an attachment injury and it feels hurtful because you feel like no one cares, no one sees you. These are rejecting. It's essentially the same thing as 
a million years ago when we were being rejected by the tribe or when we were a year old and our parents didn't pay attention to us. We evolved to interpret things in an attachment way and to have, an, have a corresponding emotion. When there's distancing between us and other people, particularly if it's chronic and particularly if we don't have a place to go for a secure base, then it takes a toll on our emotional lives, which takes a toll on our bodies. You know, our emotions are our bodies. So awareness of that system and awareness of that evolution and awareness of attachment theory helps in that situation. So not only are you, number one, aware of your emotional expression and, and experience, I'm feeling hurt right now, but step two is like, what attachment injury has does this have to do with? Also, knowing your history plays a major role in this, and this is where family of origin work comes into play. Okay, so that's number two. Number three is emotional regulation. So again, this is pretty fundamental and obvious, but it, it is important to point out, and it, I think attachment-based self-help absolutely needs to involve some level of emotional regulation. So when we are children, we don't have the ability to, to regulate our emotions. We depend on our parents to regulate our emotions for us. So we are sad or we're hungry and we are annoyed and we start crying. We don't have the ability to say, uh, okay, I'll get myself a snack or I'm okay. I just feel a little hungry. It's not a big deal. We don't have the ability to do that for ourselves. We're just pure emotion and we have no self. We have no ability to reflect on ourselves and take care of ourselves. And so someone has to come to us and take care of us. Someone has to regulate us. When we fall down and we're scared and then we start crying and we're hurt, we don't have the ability to say, I'll be okay. Everything's going to be fine. We don't have the ability to do that. Someone has to come to us and say, you're going to be okay. You're, you're all right. Well, through that process of emotional regulation from others, we learn how to regulate our own emotions. And that's why for many people who have been mistreated, they, they actually have difficulty regulating their emotions later in life. So along those lines, when we have feelings, emotions, and attachment injuries, we have to, in the moment, do our best to take care of ourselves because if we don't, then we will end up having unbridled negative emotions that take a toll over time, make us demoralized, make us depressed, make us suicidal, make us feel like life is pointless, make us feel like other people can't be trusted, make us, don't, make us feel like we don't like ourselves, make us feel ashamed. And so we have, to, we have to really address those emotions in the moment as best we can. Now, um, there's two different kinds of emotional regulation. I'm, I'm going to label them as uh, regular, uh, reg, regular regulation techniques and then attachment-based regulation techniques. So regular techniques are things like take a breath, relax your body, that kind of thing. Attachment-based regulation techniques are hugging somebody or reminding yourself that people love you or 
texting someone that you care about to have a connection with them. So, and you know, healthy people will do this. Healthy people will do both things. You are feeling rejected at work. No one's appreciating you. So you notice that emotion and you take a breath and you say, okay, calm down. There's no reason to get all worked up about this. Maybe there's some solution to this, but I don't really need to find one right now. I'm okay. I like my job. Even though I don't get appreciation, I still like this job. There's no reason to panic. That's a regular emotion, you know, self-talk regulation technique. The other thing that healthy people will do is when they get home, they'll go to their spouse and say, my boss is a dick and doesn't appreciate me. Or I feel underappreciated at work and I think it's bullshit. And let me express my, my feelings of hurt and anger about that. Or they will notice that they feel a little dysregulated <clears throat> and they go to a coworker and they hug them or they go to their spouse and they hug them or they go to their kids and they hug them or they go to their pet and they hug them. These are attachment-based regulation techniques that I think are um, underrepresented when we talk about emotional regulation techniques. A lot of emotional regulation techniques are, are individual and isolating. And although they're fine, it ignores what I believe to be a much more powerful regulation technique category, which is through relationships, through attachment security. When we are feeling down, when we're afraid, when we're hurt, and our loved ones are there for us, are hugging us, are cuddling with us, are holding our hand, are rubbing our back, are having eye con contact with us, are listening to our, our feelings, that is incredibly regulating. And our individualistic, capitalistic society doesn't value such things, considers it dependency or as a bastardization of the term codependency which is a denial of our human needs in the same way that someone would say that to need water is to be weak or to need food is to be weak. These are fundamental human needs, attachment, food, water. Um, what else do we need? A place to go number two? I don't know. There's fundamental things that we need and attachment is one of them and to deny it is silly. Um, so for example, let's just say, you know, you, you suddenly feel anger. So you're, you're like, oh my God, I notice I'm angry. And from previous, previous experience, you know that you must be feeling a primary emotion underneath that. So you say, well, is it, is it hurt or fear? I, I know from, from my therapist that when I feel angry, it's probably because at, I'm, there's some primary emotion that caused the anger, which is hurt or fear. And then you think about it and you're like, oh, it's probably because people weren't listening to me in that staff meeting. In that staff meeting I just came out of, I felt like I was trying to get something across and no one was really you know, paying attention to me. Ah, I must be hurt. My feelings must be hurt. My attachment needs must be threatened by that rejection of that crowd, which led me to feel angry and hostile towards them. And this must be triggering my old attachment injuries from being ignored as a child. And I, so I need to take a few breath, two, a few minutes to tend to this emotion, deep breaths. I'm okay. Everything's fine. No one is really ignoring me. It just feels that way. Deep breaths. I'm okay. 
Um, I'm going to go next door to my friend who works in the office next door, and I'm going to say, so was it just me or people ignoring me in the last staff meeting? And your friend is like, um, well, I guess now that you say that, it kind of did seem like some people are being dicks. But, you know, they're just uptight about this or that, and they're not – I'm sure it's not personal. I'm sure that's just because they're just – that's just how they are. And I've experienced that too. And then you get that attachment need met through that experience. So that's what I'm talking about. Awareness, family of origin, a regulation, attachment-based regulation techniques. And the fourth and final step here is to create a lifestyle of these habits. And I guess you could say that's implied in this whole thing, but I think it it's worthy of being pointed out in its own step here, is you have to make all of these steps automatic and practiced. You have to develop many options. Like if you only, like, let me just ask you out there. When you're hurt, when your feelings are hurt, how many different things do you know formally that you do to help you recover from those hurt feelings? You know, think, think of, you know, pause the podcast and try to come up with as many as you can. I'll give you a second. Okay, so if you had 10, 20 different things that you thought up off the top of your head, you're doing pretty good. If you could only think of like two or three, particularly if those, if the short list was dominated by things that require uh, a lot of time, like sometimes people will say like, well, when I'm, when I'm in a bad mood, I like to go for a hike. Well, unless you go for a hike every day, which is not likely, that's, not a, that's, that's great that you know that hikes help you, but it's not very useful because our feelings are hurt on a pretty much a daily basis. I would take a guess that my feelings are hurt every day on some level. Uh, some days, obviously, worse than others. And if I don't have a way of, of, of coping with those feelings in the moment that I can accomplish in various different contexts, then that's going to build up and I'm going to become demoralized. I'm going to become cynical. I'm going to become distrusting. I'm going to become shameful. So I have to address that right away. Things like, again, deep breaths, uh, going to your pets. You know, I think this is why a lot of people bring their animals with them uh, a lot more often than they used to. Because as our society has become more and more isolated, as people move toward, you know, as, as wealth goes up and people can afford their own homes. Because in the past, like, particularly women, right, because they weren't allowed to work, people didn't, people weren't alone very often. There was a lot of kids around, you had smaller homes, smaller yards. And today, I find that, again, particularly in Seattle, with the amount of money that people have, is with wealth comes larger houses. Uh, you sometimes people have like three living rooms. <laughs> you know, you you have you have the the formal living room. You have the family living room, and then you have like the kids' living room. And and at night, like everyone is in their own respective living rooms. Uh, so this isolation that is just ever increasing is creating a lot of people with it with unmet attachment needs 
And people are turning to their animals because of convenience, I suppose. And one of the outgrowths of that is that I think people are starting to bring their animals with them because they, they have a hard time regulating their emotions when they're away from home uh, or they're away from their pet, I guess, specifically. And now, of course, I, this is just me thinking off the top of my head. I have no idea what, how much of this is a factor or whether it's a factor at all to people that bring their pets with them. But I think it's a valid speculation. Yeah, so I, I, I feel like we're getting worse with our attachment situations because it's sort of like when we think about our environment in terms of moving away from nature. Most of us agree that moving into concrete jungles with processed air, with no nature, is not necessarily good for us. The idea goes is that we evolved to live in nature, and when we're taken out of nature, bad things happen to us. We love a good vista. We love looking out over the water. We love a good forest. And these are things that make sense that we would have evolved to prefer. And when we are taken away from those things, we have symptoms of mood issues or energy issues or whatever. And the same is true, if in my estimation even more so, that when we're taken away from our original environment, which was, uh, I mean, newsflash, people couldn't afford their own bedrooms even just 50 years ago, let alone 10,000 years ago. You were in eyesight and earshot of at least 30 people, probably at all times. That's the environment that we grew up in, and that's the environment where we feel comfortable. That's the environment where we feel safe, heard, understood, attached, all those things, which are very important things. And as we, as our culture, and it's really, to some extent, an American thing, because you go into other cultures around the world, and the kids don't leave the house. They will stay in the home and will just never leave home. And in the United States, that's considered one of the worst, most pathetic things you could ever do to, to be 35 and quote unquote, still living at home is one of the most disgraceful things an American person could ever, ever do. People are so ashamed of this. People will be like, yeah, you know, I, I lost my job and I, I had to move back home with my parents or did you know that the the Johnson's kid, he's like 29 and he still lives at home? It's it's one of the most disgraceful things. In other societies, it's the norm. And so we need to look at our culture and say like, well, why are we doing this to ourselves? I'm not saying all children should stay home with their parents, but what I am saying is that we have this overall gestalt push to isolate and to be quote-unquote independent and to disgrace and shame dependence. And when we do that, it sacrifices attachment on the altar of independence. And we all suffer from that. And we all end up being depressed and anxious and alone and demoralized. It's happening all around us. I mean, just look at 
the MGTOW and the incel people and the suicide rates going up. And the opiate epidemic is in large part, in my estimation, research shows this to some extent, we'll get into that later, due to attachment injury, due to isolation. And whenever we see these mass killers, in my estimation, they all have a massive attachment injury issues. Now, I'm not sure if we can blame society for all those things, but we don't focus on it enough. And and I, there's just no – where is the movement? Where's the march on Washington to stop being so individualistic in our society? Where's the petition to sign to help educate people about their attachment needs? Where is the class in middle school that for six months all you do is talk about emotions and attachment? Uh, it's non-existent. And I find that to be just strange. If I was president of the world, that would be one of the first things I would do. I would say, okay, ministers of attachment, get together and figure out how you're going to, as a public health issue, educate everybody about what attachment is and how they can help themselves because it's moral to do so because it's right. And two, as a distant second, when people get their attachment needs met, they're much less likely to commit crime. They're much less likely to have a psychopathology, much less, much less likely to abuse substances, much less likely to abuse their kids, much more likely to parent their children well. There's benefits monetarily to society, to crime, to health to politics, which I'll get into as well. Conspiracy theories are more likely to be held when someone has attachment injuries. There's just so many things that we could solve if we did something about attachment and were aware of it. And most people are completely unaware of it. People sit down on my couch and have no idea what attachment theory is. They have no idea what attachment injuries are. They have no idea that attachment is even a, a human need. You know, many people will, I'll be working with them for years and they'll come and they'll be like, so, you know, I'm, I'm, me and my wife, we had a, we had a fight and I, I, you know, I lost my temper. I didn't know what to do. And I just, I don't know. I just feel so, I just feel so stupid. I just feel so ashamed. But like, oh, why do you feel ashamed? Well, I feel ashamed because I just couldn't let it go. And I would try to let it go. I've been trying to let things go, they'll say. I, things have been happening to me. I, I keep trying to let it go, but it, I just, I'm just, there's something wrong with me. I can't let it go. And I'll be like, well, what are you trying to let go? And they'll be like, well, I just, you know, essentially what they'll say is I feel alone. I feel rejected. I feel hurt. I feel um, isolated. And I'm trying to let that go. And I'm like, why would you want to let that go? It's not possible to let, let that go. And why would you want to, quote unquote, let that go? You know, there's just this notion of just like, I just have to let it go. I just have to not care. I just have to be independent. And again, I'll be working with people for years, helping them understand their attachment needs. And they'll, and because they go out into society and are reprogrammed by society, they'll come back to me having been reprogrammed. I have to, I have to program them again <laughs> to be like, you can't let go of that. 
Let's not try to let go of that. Let's let's try to work with it. Let's try to acknowledge that you have this need and let's try to work with it. You know, there's there's no way around that. Anyway. So the fourth step here is to create a lifestyle of these habits to make it automatic practice, have many options and have have patterns and structures in your relational systems. So it's not just that you have these certain things that you do, but you actually have to cultivate a system around you that is attachment-oriented, meaning especially your spouse, if, if you have a partner, you especially have to develop a language or a pattern of, of avoiding attachment injuries to each other and also to address attachment injuries to each other. Um. So, for example, let's say you, you feel like your wife undermined you in front of the children. And you immediately – so this is you having developed the habit. You immediately recognize your emotion. You're like, my wife undermined me. I, I feel angry. Oh, wait. I know from a lot of experience that I'm actually hurt right now. It hurt to have my wife undermine me in that way. You immediately know how this emotion is related to your attachment. It felt like a rejection by both your wife and your child. You, f- you feel like the two of them rejected you as if you were stupid or incompetent, which is just like the way your parents made you feel when you were young. You immediately know how to regulate those emotions. You take a few minutes, you do some positive self-talk, you tell yourself you don't need to take any action in this moment, you can, you can always do something later, you take some deep breaths. You go for a walk with the dog. You also immediately know how to address your attachment needs. You wait for a good moment, maybe after the kids are in bed. You go to your wife and you say, so, you know, earlier when I was trying to get Jenny to eat her dinner and you interrupted me, I know you were trying to help, which is great. And maybe your approach was better. I don't know. But the way you did it, because it was so abrupt as I was trying to do what I was trying to do. It made, it hurt my feelings. And that's why I've been kind of quiet tonight. And I apologize for being quiet, but I, I didn't want to say anything until after the kids were in bed. That's all you say. And you know, through experience, as you've built, developed a routine between you and your spouse, that 90% chance this is going to go well. You trust that in all likelihood, if you stick to the plan, you tell your feelings, you're non-accusatory, that you're going to get your attachment needs met in this moment. You don't exactly know how that's going to happen. You don't know exactly what your wife is going to say, but you just trust like, I'm pretty sure this is going to go okay. That's a key. That's key because a lot of people don't have that trust. They head into a conversation like this and they're like, if I express my feelings, I, there's no guarantee that my wife is going to hear it or care. And that's where, you know, again, you can't just do this in isolation. You can't address your attachment needs without altering your system. You have to, your whole, the whole system has to work well. You can't just do this on your own. And so she responds well. It's very critical that she respond well. And she says something like, oh my God, yeah, you're right. Sorry about that. I shouldn't have done that. Um, I was panicking because... Uh, you know, I had to, I had to get to some email from work and I just really needed her to finish her dinner. (laughs) And I think I thought your system of trying to get Jenny to eat dinner was kind of the slow road. 
and I I just needed her to I just needed her to do it, and I I find that this other technique works, and so I so I threw it in there, and but yeah, you're right, I shouldn't have interrupted you. That was that was disrespectful, and I'll try not to do that in the future. Uh, maybe I'll signal you or something, or I'll ask you a question. Hey, honey, would you like me to take a shot at this? Um, or how would you like me to interrupt? Or would you like me to not ever interrupt? What you know? Let's work together on this. So both people have to do that. Both people have to know what's happening. Both people have to know their family of origins. Both people have to know their attachment sensitivities. Both people have to know their primary emotions. Because when the husband says to wife, um, I, you know, I think you undermine me and that hurt my feelings, the wife will feel hurt by that too. Because when you express to someone else that they hurt your feelings, there's a lot being communicated in that. Uh, one is, is you're telling your spouse how you feel. But another thing is, even if you're not trying to, you're saying that your spouse did something wrong. You're criticizing them. You don't mean to, you, you're not, you might not mean to criticize them, but it can ob- obviously be taken as a criticism. The wife could absolutely say, well, what I'm hearing is that you're hurt. I'm also hearing that I did something wrong that I shouldn't have done. And that caused you to be hurt. That's what I'm hearing. So the wife has to be emotionally mature as well, has to know her attachment injury sensitivities, has to understand her emotions, has to understand in within half a second, she has to, she has to process all that. And again, you only do it in a half second when you've done it millions of times because you, you, you've, you're practiced at it. So everyone has to be on board with this. And it's complicated because it's never taught to us. No one talks about this in my experience. And people are just left to their own devices. And when they are left to their own devices, they typically just get angry, rejecting, and they try to passively aggress upon other people. Like a, like a, a very common scenario in this situation would be the, the wife, quote unquote, undermines the husband. The husband gets huffy and upset and holds a grudge and gives her the silent treatment. And the wife has no idea why or feels like, well, if your parenting was better, I wouldn't have to step in, you know, get defensive, sort of dig in and rinse and repeat that and you get a divorce. So it's very important that everyone understand this. And it's so wonderful when everyone gets it. It's, it's, it really solves a lot of life's problems. You know, imagine if that goes on for a while where you're undermining and feeling hurt and blah, blah, blah. And then that's translated into your sex life and into the way you talk about work and the way you talk about each other, the way you talk about finances. You know, people often say, and research will show this, that couples will get divorced commonly because of money, infidelity, and parenting. And I'm always like, that doesn't make any sense to me. No, I've never seen a couple get divorced, quote unquote, because of money. What they got divorced over was because their conversations about money led to attachment injuries. Their conversations about how to parent their children led to attachment injuries. That's what happens. When, uh, you know, how, how would money interfere? Unless two people are like, 
the most psychopathic, greedy people on the planet, and they're only in the marriage for money, there's no reason why money would cause a divorce. The reason why it it leads it often is the cause of attachment injuries is because it's one of the few things that couples really have to work out. Even wealthy couples, there there's so many decisions you have to make, particularly when you have a bunch of kids. There's like so many little micro decisions that as a couple you have to make together, or at least some decisions you have to make together. Like husband wants to buy an Audi and the wife is like, no, I think you should buy a more sensible car, like a Toyota. So in that moment, there's this, both people have a vested interest. It, it's, you know, it's both their money. The husband wants this one thing. And the wife is like, if you buy that thing, you're taking away $20,000 of my money because it's 20 extra thousand dollars to pay for an Audi as opposed to a Toyota. That's, you're taking my thing. You're taking something away from me. And then that leads to a inherent conflict, but without an, a way of attaching and tending to other, the other person's attachment needs, then bad things happen. Okay, so now I want to just get into some grab bag topics having to do with attachment-based therapy. Uh, I didn't know what category to put these in, so it's just a bunch of random things. Uh, one point here that I want to make, and I'm not sure if I made this yet, but is that many therapies are not seen as attachment-based, but they actually are. You know, Rogers, person-centered therapy, client-centered therapy is absolutely attachment-based. It wasn't uh, uh, conceptualized that way. It was conceptualized more as helping people to be authentic, to listen phenomenologically, to help people to understand themselves and explore. But it's, of course, done within a relationship with a therapist who is exhibiting a tremendous amount of care and empathy and compassion and being with the person, uh, being attuned to the person's needs. This is all totally inherent to the Rogerian approach and absolutely attachment-based. Gestalt therapy is, um, in many ways, you could consider it to be attachment-based. People are often exploring themselves, or really all the humanistic forms of therapy. And this is working on the working model of self, right? You're, you're trying to understand yourself, you're trying to work through things on yourself, and you're trying to alter yourself. Satir um, therapy is absolutely, she's very warm, she's very compassionate. With family, she tried to help people to become closer, but Satir isn't usually considered an attachment-based therapy, but in my opinion, it absolutely is. Schema therapy, cognitive therapy uh, that has to do with belief systems and and the past. So schema therapy is absolutely an attachment-based therapy. At at the very least, you're trying to rework your working models of yourself and other people. And in superior forms of schema therapy, the therapist is absolutely being compassionate and caring and developing a relationship with you. And so that's also attachment-based. Narrative therapy, not considered attachment-based, but absolutely is, in my opinion, similar to schema therapy, and so on. There there are so many different therapies. Uh, Generally speaking, psychodynamic therapy is considered attachment-based, but uh, for some it isn't. So I guess just making sure that people understand that. All right. Um, So... Let's go on to something else here. 
Oh, there are a lot of therapies that are really, uh, I would, so it's not like every therapy can be conceptualized as attachment based. There are many theory, many types of therapy that are almost explicitly not attachment based, like cognitive therapy or behavioral therapy or solution focused or DBT. These types of therapies are the the way that the therapists are instructed to be it's almost to some extent anti attachment particularly things like brief therapies like solution focused the these kinds of therapies are designed to be short they're designed to help people to solve their issues in a pragmatic way and um not designed to develop an attachment now, some cognitive therapists, some behavioral therapists, some solution-focused therapists, many DBT therapists will also have a, an eye on attachment or inadvertently, because they just believe in having a good relationship with their clients, will create a therapeutic attachment with their clients. So it's not like cognitive therapists can't have a attachment-based approach inadvertently or advertently. It's that they. Uh, it's just not necessarily inherent to to the process. Like with Rogers, it, it's it's the principles of Rogerian therapy is so much in line with attachment based therapy. That's why to me it's it's absolutely inadvertently attachment based. But cognitive therapy is designed. You know, there's there's versions that like. Cognitive therapy is really broad. There's so many different things that you could say that it is. But its most common manualized forms are five to ten sessions and involve a, you know, a lot of education almost with the client, helping them to understand their thoughts and helping to change those thoughts and how it informs their emotions and their behaviors, how they can get what they want out of life, all that sort of thing. And there needs to be some rapport between therapist and client, but the uh, therapist doesn't necessarily have to have an attachment in order for that to work. For Rogerian therapy to work, I would suspect there has to be on some level attachment uh, there. Even if it's just one session with a Rogerian therapist, there has to, it has to do with that relationship anyway. Um, so that is that topic. So what about ruptures? Well, just a short little note about ruptures. Again, I couldn't really figure out where else to put this. But a lot of people have looked into ruptures and attachment. And so ruptures are when a therapist and a client have some kind of rupture to their relationship. The uh, you know common ruptures are the therapist isn't really paying attention and the, and the client feels rejected. Or the therapist has to cancel an appointment. Or... The client is triggered somehow, their attachment injuries are triggered, and the client lashes out and is hostile with the therapist in a session and storms out of the session. These, these are all examples of ruptures. Well, Safran and Moran in two, year 2000 looked into the uh, rupture and attachment style, and they actually found that, or, or speculator concluded that the cycle that you go through with a client, you know, when you have a rupture and then you go through various different repair cycles of trying to 
repair that relationship is similar to the reunion episodes of the the Ainsworth-Strange Situation paradigm. So remember when I was talking about the strange situation that Mary Ainsworth did, and many others have done, is, but she was the one who invented it, her and her colleagues, she was in charge, <laughs> lots of caveats there. Um, remember that when the parent left the room and the parent returned, there were various different reactions that the child would have. Some of the, the, the secure children would stand up, move towards the parent, and, uh, and be soothed by it, be happy. Yay, mommy's back. I was sad and now I'm happy and I want to I want to be close to you and I want to get up in your lap and I want you to hold me. And fairly quickly the secure child will become soothed and within a minute or so we'll be back playing with the toys. The avoidant children would not uh look at the mother. The the avoidant children would they would the, the idea is is that the avoidant child knew the mother returned but wanted to just avoid the whole thing like ah, i've learned a long time ago it's even though i'm suffering right now it's best i just don't pay attention to mom because if i do i'm going to be hurt so i'm, I'm just going to play by myself quote unquote very independent children right the preoccupied kids would upon return of the mother not be consoled very well. They they would run to the mother and cling to the mother and have a much longer return time to the toys, if at all. And they might even be hostile with the mother when the mother returned. They might be violent or angry or something. The disorganized children had all of the above plus a bunch of other bizarre behaviors, sort of being pulled in two directions, so to speak. So what Saffron and Moran were saying was that when you have a rupture with your client and then a repair, you will see a similar uh, behavior with the adult, an analogous behavior with the adult. So when you have a rupture with a secure client, the client will generally respond well and quickly, recover quickly, and will be appreciative or whatever, will be mature and healthy and non-reactive in general. The avoidant client will, and I don't, I, I don't know if Saffron and Moran put it this way, but this is, this is me elaborating on a point that I read from them. The avoidant client will act like they don't care. Like, well, you know, I'm just, I'm here because my wife wants me to be here and I don't really care about our relationship. So, so they give off a vibe to you upon repair that they don't really care. The preoccupied person upon repair will dig in and be punishing to you, potentially, and will not necessarily be soothed by the repair and might even cling to you even harder, might say, like, we need more sessions a week or whatever. The disorganized client will have a very strange response that will be hard to conceptualize as either avoided or preoccupied and will definitely be pathological, so to speak. So I just thought it was an interesting observation by Saffron and Moran. I like a lot of things that that they've written about. So just getting back to other theories that aren't inherently attachment-based, I should, uh, I'm getting to the point in my notes, I'm a little jumbled up in my notes right here because this is the grab bag portion of this chapter, is that a lot of the different therapies have 
begun to acknowledge that attachment and relationship is important in the therapeutic relationship. There have been writers in cognitive therapy, behavioral therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, interpersonal therapy, psychoanalytic, psychodynamic, emotion focus. There's been a lot of people who have been writing and saying, well, we need to incorporate attachment into our theory because it's so powerful and so much a fundamental human thing. The other thing I'll say about some theories is that uh, you could actually say that they are attachment-based. If you understand the theory in question and also understand attachment theory well enough, uh, they're often pointing to the same thing. And th- this is what I've found to be very true is, is that the more I learn about theories, the more I realize that they're all basically pointing to the same thing, but they're just describing it in slightly different ways. For example, with behaviorism, a lot of people would say like, oh, it's very cold and doesn't really have to do with emotions and doesn't have to do with the mind and doesn't have to do with attachment, doesn't have to do with development. Behaviorism is in the in the now and about conditioning and it's it's very robotic or whatever. But at the core of behaviorism, the idea is, is that we learn from our experience and that our current interpretations or our current behaviors or our current motivations are evidence of having been pat having having uh, situations in the past that rewarded us or didn't reward us for particular behaviors and attachment theory is so so it's and that's true right we all understand conditioning it's all it's observed phenomenon in in all animals including humans and we understand that and it sounds at first to be very different from attachment theory but if we understand behaviorism and we understand attachment theory well enough we can actually see that they're they're talking about the same thing, just with different language and with different emphasis. So when we're children, as if as infants, we are trying to learn how to get our attachment needs met. And through trial and error, through reinforcement and punishment, we learn what ends up working and what ends up not working. And then we then that becomes an ingrained part of our behavior system and we end up retaining that behavior system into the future regardless of whether or not it's actually working for us. So for example with just getting away from attachment based things with smoking cigarettes we with when we look at it through a behaviorist lens the first cigarette that you had had a a, a number of different reinforcing Uh, qualities. Nicotine, maybe you smoked with your friends in high school behind a dumpster and you were bonding. There were lots of different things that rewarded you for going through the procedure of buying a pack of cigarettes, uh, packing the cigarettes, taking a cigarette out, lighting it, inhaling the smoke into your lungs, blowing it out. All of those little behaviors contributed to you getting a number of different benefits and rewards. And therefore, all of these behaviors end up becoming reinforced. Even though, quote unquote, just, you know, lighting a cigarette wasn't actually the thing that got you the reward, such as socializing, it 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 associated those good things with that process of smoking. We all understand that, right? Well, when we're children... We have so so the idea goes is that we have a need for pleasure, we have a need for um, socializing, which is pleasurable. 
when we're children, we also have a need for pleasure. And one way of conceptualizing our attachment needs is through the lens of pleasure in that we get pleasure from being attached, from being around our parents and from being paid attention to and from being held. And so over time as children, we learn what behaviors will get us that pleasure. If we are in a good parenting situation, then when we cry, our parents come to us. When we have eye contact with our parents, they, they're more likely to continue that eye contact. When we, you know, like to, when we play with toys in a loud way, in a cute way, our parents come to us and play with us, pay attention to us, eye contact. All of this is reinforcing the behaviors of reaching out, trust, noticing your own needs, all that kind of stuff. Whereas if you're mistreated, you learn through conditioning that reaching out is bad, that listening to your feelings is bad, and you will be punished. There will be bad things that will happen if you pay attention to your emotions. There will be bad things that happen if you trust other people. Bad things will happen if you reach out to other people. Bad things will happen if you believe that you're a good enough person to be loved. And so you learn over time to uh, have uh, to adopt a position or to have a behavior system, have motivational systems that actually lead to a better outcome, which is to distrust, to not reach out, to not know your emotions. And that becomes learned behavior. It, you know, through behaviorism, that behavior becomes locked in. And then you could say that the conglomerate of that whole thing by the time you're 25 years old is your, is your attachment style. Your attachment style was learned through behaviorism principles. So there's a lot of things like that that I like to make those connections. It just makes me feel like I don't have to learn a hundred different theories. I just have to learn human experience, and then I just have to learn how different theories are used to describe the fundamental human experience. I find that to be uh, very pleasurable. So another thing that people are talking about that I like is that maybe we should be using attachment theory as a unifying theory for all of psychotherapy because it's because it was rejected so wholeheartedly by psychoanalysis attachment theory doesn't reside within any of the major schools of psychotherapy it's not it's not considered a psychoanalytic theory it's not considered I mean, some people consider it a psychoanalytic theory because contemporary psychoanalysis and psychodynamic people have have readopted Bowlby. But if you remember in the history episode, he was rejected by psychoanalysis, psychodynamic people pretty much his entire life up until the 90s. And so, but, you know, it, it could be argued that it is, but it could be argued that it isn't. It's definitely not a cognitive behavioral theory. It's not a humanistic theory. It's not a family systems theory. Although in later years, a lot of people are starting to adopt it, but it, but it's not considered to be in any particular theory. Um, so in a way it's, it, it, it disbenefits from that because it often gets ignored, but it benefits from that in that it can be adopted by everybody and everyone can feel like they're not betraying their, their silo by, uh, by going to attachment theory 
as the unifying unifying principle between all the different theories. So that's just another thing to think about. All right, let's talk about treatment and attachment styles between therapist and the client. So a lot of research has found that when clients are insecurely attached, they're avoidant, preoccupied, or disorganized, it is associated with a lot of bad things in therapy. Uh, now, it should be noted that this these are averages, these are bell curves. Um, this doesn't mean that if you have insecure attachment, you're going to fail at therapy. It just means that therapy's just a little harder for people who are insecurely attached. Uh People who are insecurely attached are more likely to not comply with treatment. They're more likely to reject their clinicians, meaning they'll be like, I don't like this clinician. They tend to disclose less, particularly avoidant people, which makes sense. And outcomes are worse, just general outcomes. There's lots of research supporting this finding that Avoidant, preoccupied, disorganized people have worse outcomes in general. And they found this to, for many conditions, whether it's depression, eating disorders, and so on. And they're more likely to report bad experiences in couple therapy. And um, also, uh, on the flip side of this, is that when therapists pay attention to attachment in the relationship things tend to go better for insecurely attached people. So you, as a clinician, can make up for the uh, uh, association with all these bad things by focusing on attachment. So if you have an insecurely attached client, which I'm guessing a lot of, a lot of your clients are, if you focus on attachment, at least for part of the time in treatment, then things will go better. So there's a lot of reasons why insecurely attached people would do worse in therapy and not like therapy as much and not comply as much. It makes sense, right? It, you have trouble trusting. You're likely to have higher symptoms. You're likely to be suffering more. You're likely to be hurt more easily by your therapist. And that's just going to lead to worse outcomes. If you're securely attached and you go to therapy, then you're much more likely to trust to retain your self-esteem, to be less symptomatic. So it just stands to reason. It, to me, it's like saying when people go to their physician, people who have uh, you know, larger physical symptoms tend to do worse when, after they are released from the hospital. <laughs> you know, like Sicker people tend to recover slower in hospitals. It's like, well, no duh. So it just makes sense that outcomes would be worse for insecurely attached people. Avoidant people are less likely to go to therapy, according to research. I've talked about that before. Again, this is sort of the grab bag portion. Disorganized people, the recommendation for helping disorganized people is you have to help them build at least one good working model. And in my experience, it's good to work on both working models, self or others. But if you're having trouble gaining traction, sometimes it's good just to focus on one or the other. And you have to intuit which one is more likely to improve. So someone comes in, they're disorganized attachment, they are struggling a lot, they have a lot of symptoms, they're having a hard time trusting the process, um, they, they're not responding to therapy very well, you feel a little 
odd with them because I, as I talked about before, there's tends to be a fair amount of countertransference with disorganized people. You can intuit and say like, well, if I try to build up their self-esteem and try to improve their self object, their work, you know, self working model. And I, that seems to be like a greater likelihood of working than if we work on their other object, then you want to go for the self object or vice versa. It's a thing you intuit as a therapist. When the client is uh, attached to the therapist securely, then that is associated with better outcomes. So regardless of the attachment style of the client and the therapist, if there's a secure attachment between therapist and client, then the outcomes are better. And so this is a weird one. There's a fair amount of research pointing to outcomes that are better when the client and the therapist have what we call complementary attachment styles. And, and specifically, if the therapist is secure and the clients are insecure, or the therapist is insecure and the th- client is secure, then those combinations tend to do better than when both the client and therapist are insecure, which makes sense, right? But they also tend to do better than when both the client and the therapist are secure, which doesn't make any sense, right? There's a lot of speculation as to why this would be true. And all of it seems possible, but it's hard to know why this would be because it would make sense that secure therapist, secure client outcomes would be the best, right? But now these data are a little shakier, so it's harder to tell. At the very least, it stands to reason that if you have an insecure therapist and an insecure client, the outcomes are not going to be so great because both therapist and client are more likely to be reactive. So now let's get into therapist attachment style. So as uh, predicted, therapists who have secure attachment tend to be better therapists they tend to have better outcomes, and they tend to handle ruptures better. What about preoccupied therapists? Well, some research has found that preoccupied therapists, and I know some of you out there are therapists who identify as having preoccupied attachment style, they have been found, on average, to be less empathetic. And this has been done in lab experiments where they actually study people in the lab and they measure their attachment style and they measure their empathetic reaction to a vignette that they watch and they find that preoccupied people tend to be uh, less empathetic on average, of course. So this is kind of a weird one because I've, I've often found and contended that borderline preoccupied people tend to be fairly empathetic because they, as children, learned to pay very close attention to other people's emotions. So I think on one hand... When you're on the preoccupied borderline spectrum, you're more able to detect emotions in other people and you're more receptive, you're more sensitive, you notice things better. But at the same time, you're more likely to be reactive and distorted around those emotions and you're more likely to be anxious about other people's emotionality and you're more likely to be worried about rejection and then that makes you more worried about yourself and less able to be empathetic. So I think both those things are true. And it makes total sense. 
that uh, being insecurely attached and particularly preoccupied would make it difficult for therapists to be sensitive because therapists are frequently uh, rejected, so to speak. You know, little ones like you're a therapist and you suggest something to the client. You're thinking, oh, well, it kind of sounds like you're saying this. And then the client says, well, no. I mean, this just happened to me the other day. I was talking with a client and I was telling, uh, he was telling me about his relationships and I tried to paraphrase what he was saying or I tried to speculate about what he was saying. And he was like, nope, I don't think you have that right. <laughs> so in those moments, it's a rejection of sorts, right? I'm glad the client does that sort of thing because I would never want to bulldoze a client in terms of their experience. But it's a minor hurt, right, to be rejected in that way and or a humiliation on some level. And if you are sensitive to rejection, you have traumas around abandonment and rejection, then you're more likely to be deeply hurt and then therefore deeply angry and then therefore have difficulty with empathy. And there obviously can be bigger rejections like a client who seems distant or even just flat out says they don't like you as a therapist. Being preoccupied is going to make it a little harder to deal with. Being avoidant, on the other hand, um, makes it easier to deal with because you're more independent, you have a, you have a greater sense of your own self-esteem, and you don't necessarily regard other people's opinions very highly. And so avoidant people tend to be better able to handle that kind of thing. Um, and of course, secure people are probably the best. But the downside to being avoidant is that there's probably generally less compassion and generally less attunement because the avoidant therapist is less warm, less able to care, or less noticing of things. And then disorganized therapists, it, it varies. It really just depends on, and all this depends on a therapist's personal work. If I know disorganized, I mean, for example, Bob has talked about on the podcast before how he identifies as having disorganized attachment. I would say that in his worst moments, he's disorganized and at his uh, cruising altitude, he is preoccupied with some secure, I would say. And he's an excellent therapist, as I think many of you could tell. And it's because he's been in therapy for decades and he thinks about this a lot and he knows how to manage his countertransference and he consults, he gets supervision, he gets consultation Sometimes he'll come to me and he'll just be in a super bad mood and he'll just be like, oh, you know, I, I got I to gotta download with you right now. And, you know, those are all ways that one can cope with insecure attachment and, and be an excellent therapist. So it's not about if you're an insecure, if you have insecure attachment, you're doomed. It's a matter of what you do to cope with it. And conversely, if you're a securely attached individual as a therapist you can be horrible towards your clients and have very little empathy because you're not self-aware. You haven't been in therapy a lot. You haven't really stretched yourself beyond yourself. You haven't looked into your family of origin. So it's just that if you're insecurely attached, it's a harder road to get to a place where it's 
more likely that you're going to be less reactive. It was a funny sentence to say. Okay, so let's go into other forms of attachment therapy. So, of course, the first one we want to talk about here is emotionally focused therapy or EFT. I've done a deep dive on this, and so if you want to hear that full episode, go to the website and use the password to get into the patron EPS pages and listen to that episode. But in short, uh, just as a caveat, this is my take on it, and there are different camps within EFT, and there's a bunch of technical language that EFT people use, but I don't use that language, so when I talk about this briefly, just take that in mind. EFT is largely based on Bowlby's work, and Leslie Greenberg uh, had some pioneering work with EFT, and then Sue Johnson, of course. And the ideas in EFT, according to my take on it, is that, one, our emotions are central to our experience, thus the title of Emotionally Focused Therapy. And I've talked about this in the deep dive. It's like it should it should really be changed to be called attachment focused therapy because it's a focus on it's focused on emotions, of course, but it's only focused on emotions in so much as the emotions are related to attachment. But, you know, the term emotionally focused developed, I think, before the attachment portion of the theory was really the dominant theory within it. But anyway, so. Emotionally focused therapy focuses on emotions because emotions are guides for learning what we need and how to get our needs met. And to many today, they might, particularly clinicians, they might be like, well, aren't all forms of therapy focused on emotions? Shouldn't, shouldn't all forms of therapy be paying attention to emotions? And to some extent, they have become, emotions have become more important to clinicians. But back when EFT was developed, it wasn't the dominant idea in our field. Emotions were, to some people, considered to be kind of a nuisance, that they wanted people to think more and not feel as much. But uh, Leslie Greenberg and Bowlby and Sue Johnson were like, nope, let's focus on emotions. And why do we focus on emotions? Because attachment is central to our emotions. Our emotions tell us about our attachment needs. I've talked about this before. And the other thing about EFT is that we all need attachment security. And when we feel secure in our attachments, we experience much less dysfunction in our lives, less depression, less anxiety, less relationship difficulties, etc. So the question to EFT is how do we establish a more consistent feeling of attachment security in our lives? So it's EFT is essentially what I've been talking about this whole time in general. Now, EFT has a, a particular language that Sue Johnson puts forth. It has a particular sequence and everything that I don't really follow. But the, the general backbone of attachment of EFT and really may, maybe every attachment-based therapy is the same thing that, that I've been using. And I, I want to point out that I developed a, 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 an attachment-based style of, to therapy because I came from the object relations world. And if you, and I was totally encapsulated in that world. I was encapsulated in the, in the world of object relations, psychodynamic and contemporary family systems and contemporary object relations and Satir and all these people. And so I ended up, and then I learned about John Bowlby and I was like, Oh, okay, let's, let's integrate all this together. 
years later, I discovered EFT and was like, oh, I see that these people came up with the same ideas that I came up with and that other people that were in the object relations had come up with. And so whenever I think about attachment-based therapies, I think of lots of different kinds of theories, in particular object, contemporary object relations. I'm saying contemporary because if you go way back to the origin of object relations, Melanie Klein, these people, it wasn't very attachment-based. It was more... Uh, it was more based on your inner drives. It was more based on individual psyche uh, uh, conceptualizations. So it took people like John Bowlby and Fairburn and um, Harry Sack Sullivan and these kinds of people who also adhered to, and Winnicott, these people adhered to the um, object relations ideas, but they expanded it to relationship. Anyway, the point is, is that I always like to point this out because I don't like the fact that EFT is seen by our um, industry as being the you know dominant attachment-based therapy. When there were there have been many, and it's just that a lot of people don't talk about it that way, or they don't know that that exists. It's the same thing, and I've talked about this before. It's just another soapboxy thing that I don't like how DBT has become the dominant recommendation when someone has borderline personality. There are many other kinds of therapies that have been demonstrated through empirical observation to be effective with borderline personality, and in, and in my estimation, more practical in a lot of ways. DBT is, is, is wonderful. Bob practices DBT and can be wonderful, particularly for people who are at risk of suicide. But in my opinion, ongoing five, 10 year long therapy, DBT is a wonderful foundation to that, but interpersonal long-term psychodynamic therapy is the way to go with someone who understands borderline personality or any of the personality disorders. Um, so I just wanted to go on that little tangent. Anyway, so EFT is about what I've been talking about even with my own approach. You've got to know your own attachment needs moment to moment you got to be able to perceive other people's attachment needs moment by moment. You need to effectively communicate your attachment needs. You need to effectively attend to other people's attachment needs. And you need to, need to establish routines of effective attachment-enhancing behaviors between people. And this will help you with lots of things. Obviously, it will help you with your relationships. It will help you with your attachment security. But it's been shown to be effective with depression and trauma, interpersonal injuries, avoidant personality disorder, borderline couples distress, etc. So EFT has done a good job demonstrating its effect and effectiveness with various different things, which is probably why it's considered to be the dominant form of attachment therapy because they're, I think they're just really good at packaging it, researching it, putting it forth. So I commend them for that, but I kind of resent the fact that it has eclipsed other uh, traditions that I think are just as valid. The next form of therapy that could be said that is attachment-based and very much so is, is near and dear to my heart, which is interpersonal psychotherapy. So this is the form of therapy that I gravitated towards pretty quickly after object relations. I didn't know about interpersonal therapy when I was in graduate school because it's not one of the more popular ones that is taught in graduate school. But as soon as I discovered it, I was like, oh, man, this sounds exactly what I feel like I've been doing. And learning more about it helped me to solidify my ideas. 
I should do a whole deep dive on interpersonal psychotherapy, honestly, but I kind of feel like I've already done that in this episode because basically everything I've been talking about so far is, so far is interpersonal psychotherapy. There are some differences like the uh, interpersonal psychotherapy is a psychodynamic tradition and so therefore it still has some psychodynamic quirks about it like uh, free association and um, relationship patterns which I guess is working models in attachment theory. Anyway, it Interpersonal psychotherapy is based on uh, traditions in psychoanalysis. Karen Horney, Harry Stack Sullivan, Eric Fromm, Clara Thomason, Frida Fromm, Reichman, Friends Alexander, Thomas French. But mainly it's uh, Harry Stack Sullivan and John Bowlby, who are really two of my heroes. If you don't know of Harry Stack Sullivan and you're a clinician, particularly if you're a family therapist, I recommend you look into a biography of him and his ideas. He's someone that is sometimes forgotten to history, but is very important to the psychoanalytic, psychodynamic world, and someone that I think was way ahead of his time and needs to get more credit. So uh, so anyway, interpersonal therapy is mainly f- founded, so to speak, by John Bowlby and, and Harry Stack Sullivan, even though they wouldn't have said they were starting an interpersonal therapy thing. Um, So things that are worth highlighting that I've already talked about that are in attachment-based therapies in general, but interpersonal psychotherapy particularly is corrective emotional experiences. I've already talked about this, but that's pretty solid in interpersonal psychotherapy. The idea is, is that interpersonal, meaning that you use the relationship between therapist and client to heal the client to, and to help them, that it's through that interpersonal relationship between therapist and client that actually is the driving force of change for, for them. And therefore, you have to understand attachment style. You have to understand the client's counter-transference transference issue. You have to understand their relationship patterns, their history, why they have certain working models of relationships. And you have to be very warm and empathetic and you have to be very close to the client. You have to really develop a relationship that's, that's meaningful. And so it's this co-created relationship. Other names for interpersonal psychotherapy are intersubjective is a very similar form. Relational psychoanalysis is very similar. So there's this – I consider it to be contemporary relational psychodynamic-oriented therapies. They're all generally the same. So there's a lot of evidence looking at interpersonal psychotherapy, and it's been found to be um, effective for a lot of things. Uh, mo- notably, actually, it, interpersonal psychotherapy has been found to be effective for depression. In fact, some evidence has shown that it's just as effective as cognitive behavioral therapy, which, of course, is not understood in our field. Like if you said, oh, this person suffers from major depression, what is the best therapy to use? everyone would say CBT. But there's good evidence that interpersonal psychotherapy is just as effective for depression as CBT. And so why don't people know about interpersonal psychotherapy? Well, because our culture is biased. But anyway, so just know that uh, interpersonal psychotherapy is, is a pretty complicated thing, but I've boiled it down to what I consider to be its basics. If you want to know more about interpersonal psychotherapy, 
you buy uh, this book by Tabor and McClure. And if you want the full title of the, I think it's called Interpersonal Process. And if you want the full citation, you can go to our website under my book recommendations page. And I think it's one of the very first books that I recommend. It's a wonderful book, very dense. If you're a therapist and you want to know more about attachment-based therapies and uh, contemporary psychodynamic relational therapies, then this is the book for you. Every chapter is um, chock full of really great stuff. While I'm on the uh, tip of book recommendations, another book that I recommend if you want to know more about attachment therapy is Attachment in Therapy. I'm pretty sure it's called that. It's by Wallen, and that also is on the book recommendations. I, th- I think I have just three or four books that I highly recommend, and those two books are in the are in that short list. Okay, so let's go on to other attachment-based therapies. There is a form of therapy called attachment-based family therapy, and this is very similar to interpersonal therapy, but it's geared towards teenagers, attachment-based family therapy. It's been found to be effective uh, empirically with depression, suicidality, defiance, anxiety, internalizing behaviors, externalizing behaviors, family conflict, obviously, and blah, blah, blah. I'm not going to go into detail on that. Just you, it, It's family therapy for teenagers that uses attachment, attachment theory. You could imagine what that is. You're trying to help the teenager attach in a developmentally appropriate way to their parents and vice versa. And that when you have a rupture and attachment between teenager and parents, then there can be a lot of symptoms and a lot of acting out and a lot of anger and a lot of uh, depression, anxiety, defiance, smoking too much pot, that kind of thing. Another form of attachment-based therapy is mentalization-based treatment. This is the form of therapy that was put forth by Fonagy with Bateman in 1999. So we've already talked about Fonagy, and he was the one who uh, wrote a lot about mentalization and reflective function, if you remember from the theory chapter. And when you become famous, like Fonagy, you say, well, okay, well, I, people are asking me for my model of therapy. Okay, I, you know, I've put forth a lot of this research and a lot of these, this writing about how people work. Now people are saying, okay, great, now what? what do I, how do I use this stuff? And that's what is called mentalization-based treatment, which makes sense because, it, and this is speculation, but if I'm Fonagy, I'm like, well, I need to name my form of therapy. I need to brand it uh, effectively so that people associate it with me. And since everyone associates me with mentalization, I'm going to call it mentalization-based treatment. <laughs> it's sort of be like, if I had a form of therapy that I was trying to sell books uh, about, I might call it psychology in Seattle therapy or something, which of course would be a terrible name. But anyway, um, so mentalization-based treatment, it integrates a lot of different things. It, it integrates theory of mind and mentalization, obviously, but it also integrates ego psychology, Kleinian theory, object relations, and attachment theory. It focuses on helping people notice and understand their mental states of the self and their the mental states of other people, which makes sense, right? Particularly as it applies to attachment needs. So you're a th- so in in a nutshell, very simply put, you're really trying to help the client to be able to have mind of mind. 
have a mind of their own mind and have a mind of other people's mind. And to me, mentalization-based treatment is probably very similar to EFT, which is probably very similar to interpersonal therapy, but it's branded differently. And it's been found to be effective with a number of different conditions, including borderline and depression. Another form of attachment-based therapy that isn't necessarily considered to be super focused on attachment is called transference focused psychotherapy. It's a modified psychoanalytic theory uh, therapy. It's often used with personality disorders, particularly borderline and narcissistic. And there's some empirical support for it being effective with personality disorders in general. It's based on Kernberg uh, um, and manualized in 2006 by Clarkin et al. The therapist uses the here and now relationship between the therapist and the client. Uh, This is why it's called transference-focused, because you as the therapist are really focused on the transference that the client is, uh, the defense of transference that they're using with the therapist. And uh, again, it's very similar to mentalization-based treatment and and interpersonal. It's probably not super similar to EFT, but very much, because interpersonal psychotherapy is very much focused on transference and very much focused on mentalization. So... I'm guessing that you would have a hard time distinguishing between those two, but there's people who are uh, calling this thing called transference-based psychotherapy. Another one here is supportive psychodynamic psychotherapy based on object relations developed by Ann Applebaum in 2005, often used with borderline. It, again, is really similar to a lot of other attachment-based therapies and uh, psychodynamic therapies. Another thing here that we haven't really talked about yet is group psychodynamic interpersonal therapy. So this is basically taking uh, attachment and psychodynamic theory and interpersonal theory and putting them together and using them with group therapy. And it's complicated, but it seems to help people in groups. (laughs) So you're trying to Uh, use all these principles of attachment and interpersonal therapy and corrective emotional experiences and working models and mentalization and using it in group therapy. So not only are you doing it between you and the clients, but you're also trying to facilitate the group members to be able to do it with each other, right? And the last one here is brief relational therapy by, again, Safran and Moran. I've talked about them already. And it's a brief relational therapy, brief. It's basically brief attachment-based interpersonal therapy. Because sometimes there's a criticism, which is valid, that a lot of these psychodynamic interpersonal attachment-based therapies are designed to be super long-term. And a lot of people don't have that much time or that much money or the luxury or insurance can't pay for it. And so there's been some efforts by some to say, okay, well, let's see if we can really boil this down and see if we can manualize this to a brief form that can get 80% of the benefit out of it. We're never going to get... 100% because you need all the time to be able to do that. But, you know, maybe we get 50 to 80% of the effectiveness out of some sort of brief form. And so there have been some efforts in that way. I would say that absolutely. I can work with people five, 10 sessions and absolutely use a brief form of attachment-based therapies and interpersonal therapy and have it be helpful. Absolutely. Now, you're not going to, in my estimation, have massive long-term changes, particularly if you have a personality disorder. But... I've worked with people even just one session and 
found that that first session had significant effects on somebody. Um, but really, when it comes to attachment-based therapies, when we're working on people's attachments and their relationships, it takes a lot of trial and error and a lot of checking in. So let's say, so the thing I'm thinking about here is, and I've had, this is my experience with a lot of clients, they come in the first session and, or say the first number of sessions, and through exploration, we discover that they have attachment injuries, that they have attachment uh, sensitivities, and that a lot of their problems are related to attachment. And they're like, whoa, that really makes a lot of sense. Well, now the problem for them is to be able to actually change that in their life because it makes sense while they're talking to me. And a lot of times they'll be, they'll be nodding their head and they'll be like, oh, yeah, I think I'm really discovering my attachment needs, my emotions. And then they go home and they have a week with their spouse and their kids and their parents and their coworkers and whatever. And they come back into the office and they, they're, they're like, okay, I was, you know, I was trying to remember what we talked about last time, but, um, but I think it doesn't really apply to what I'm going through right now. And because my spouse is being such a dick right now. And so, you know, and then we have to start all over and say, well, it's possible that you only think that your spouse is being a dick because you feel hurt attachment wise, and that's making you distort the way that you see it. And so let's, let's walk ourselves through this. And then the end of that session, they're like, oh, at first I thought this attachment stuff didn't really apply to that scenario, but now I see that it really does. And you have to do this over and over and over again with people because you have to essentially relearn your interpretation of your emotions, your relationships, your spouse, other people, gender. It's, it takes a long time. And even though someone can kind of grasp it and they're on board with it for a few weeks, that is a very hard thing to retain and really a hard thing to um, fully internalize and heal. Because the other issue is, so not only is awareness sort of challenged by the reality of people's lives and their reactivity, but also a good amount of their reactivity is due to the fact that they have unresolved or unfinished business or um, attachment injuries that are still wounds that are unhealed. And so, and you might be the therapist, you might be the only person who is really a secure attachment to them. And so it's going to take a lot of time before you can heal that wound for them. It's the analogy is when you're, you have a three-year-old child and you're the parent and your child, you dropped your child off at daycare for the first time. And your child is one of those kids who doesn't handle that very well. And they go to daycare and you, and you're, they're crying and you're like, I got to let you go. And and you're, you're driving away and their face is plastered to the window and they're like, no, don't go. And then half an hour later you call the daycare and they're like, yeah, well, Johnny, Johnny's adjusting. He's still sad, but he he'll get better. We've seen this before. It's okay. We'll let you know if anything bad happens. Then you come back to the daycare after work and Johnny is, has been, you know, doing okay, but runs to your arms and is really sad and seems affected by it. You know, it, Johnny was kind of rattled by the fact that he went to daycare at the age of three. Well, it's going to take a while to repair that, that attachment injury that the, 
the child has gone through. It's going to take a while to help that child learn, like, so you're a safe person, you're not going to abandon me in other venues. The staff at this daycare are people I can trust. The other kids are people I can trust. It's going to take a while, and there's going to be a wound there. But with enough secure attachment with you and other people, the child will recover. Well, when you're 45 years old and you've had a lifetime of attachment injuries, it's going to take a while before you can recover, right? The example I gave, you're three, you're still, you're still open to, you're still a sponge to experience. You recover much quicker and you're much less likely to have long-standing wounds, especially if you're given a chance to recover quite quickly. If you've had 45 years of intense attachment injuries, particularly when you're young and that none of them have been resolved, then it's going to be a while in therapy before that person recovers and heals and feels calm and feels loved and feels safe and feels heard and feels processed and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, so let's get into some presenting problems. Uh, again, this is kind of the grab bag portion of this episode. Um, and actually, a lot of the episodes coming up are going to be kind of grand grab baggy because, as I said in another chapter, I've read hundreds of sources on attachment and there's so many little details that I find to be interesting. Anyway, attachment-based therapy works with a lot of different presenting problems. I can't really think of a client that I haven't used attachment-based therapy with. But as I've said before, most of my clients, if not all of them, are primarily suffering from some sort of relationship problem. And so that's a product of the sort of clients that come to me. But I find that attachment-based therapies can really be used with, with any client. Um, I'm, I'm trying to think of a client where it wouldn't be helpful with, and I really can't think of it. I can think, I think, of, I can think of clients where it's probably less of an issue, like if they're coming in because they want to quit smoking. But honestly, even quitting smoking, I would definitely think about the person's attachment style. I would think about how they can use attachment to actually help them to not smoke anymore. Like just on that example, a lot, a lot of times when people are quitting smoking, they're adults and their family members actually don't like it when they smoke and might judge them and might actually be grossed out by it and might say like, what, you know, you need to stop smoking. And the uh, help, and, and that can be actually a barrier to quitting because the addict is ashamed and feels rejected and therefore more likely to smoke because they need to cope with that projection. And so working relationally with the individual or with the couple can actually make it more likely that the person will be able to sustain their abstinence from nicotine. Anyway, so there's a lot of issues that I think are lend themselves to attachment-based therapy, particularly with the following list. Marital conflict, anger management, relationship problems, trauma, uh, along with using my model of trauma therapy, every personality disorder, anxiety, depression, lack of self, indecision, self-esteem, family conflict, lack of meaning, problems at work, etc. cetera. Um, another thing that it works with is in, uh, intimate partner violence or domestic violence. I'm going to get more into that in another episode, but I have found that it absolutely works. When I have treated 
perpetrators of intimate partner violence, I have found that for most of them, the reason why they are violent with their spouses is because of attachment injuries. And they, they're so reactive due to childhood mistreatment to threats to their relationship with their spouse that they are overwhelmed with their emotions and they cope with it by trying to control the other person and sometimes resort to violence because they're so terrified of that person leaving. And they just want to make the other person stop. They just want to make the other person stop what they're doing and start being close to them. And of course, this is a massively dysfunctional way of dealing with it, right? Because it actually pushes the other person away and is immoral. But people come to therapy because they have problems, right? So it's, um, it's very much related to that. Having said that, there's a smaller set of intimate partner violence perpetrators who are probably not directly motivated by attachment-based issues. They are people who are potentially sadistic and are uh, they enjoy hurting other people or they enjoy controlling other people. And it's, it's just for that sake that they do that for sadism's sake. It's not because they're actually trying to fix their attachment injuries. So for example, when I've one of the intimate partner violence perpetrators that I treated a long time ago, when he first came to treatment, he was pretty much in denial of his problems. But over time, as we explored why he did what he did, it became very clear to him and to all of us that, because it was group perpetrator treatment, that he was extremely sensitive to rejection and he was extremely sensitive to abandonment. But as a male, he was socialized to never communicate about such things. And also as a male, he was socialized to be very angry and, and aggressive. And so when he was hurt and when he was worried he would just get loud and he would get big and he would try to convince to him. His narrative was he was just trying to convince his wife of things. He'd be like, well, I just, I just needed her to understand my feelings. I needed her to understand. And she like refused to understand. And sometimes that would escalate to violence, but at the very least it would usually escalate to intimidation and um, aggressive talk, emotional abuse, essentially put downs, you know, like, um, you know, you're so fucking stupid. You don't understand me. You know, you never fucking listen. You better listen to me. You know, that, that kind of aggressive speak intimidation speak that he in, acquired from his parents. And when we drilled down on all that, we discovered that the, the beginning of that process, you know, the end process was him slapping his wife and keeping her from going to her phone so she could call her sister and save her. But so that was awful. But if we worked our way backwards into the process there, we always traced it back to some attachment worry, some hurt or some rejection or some anxiety about losing his wife, some jealousy, some worries she was going to cheat on him. And then that would lead to some emotion, which would lead to some coping style, which leads to attachment behaviors which if you've been taught dysfunctional attachment behaviors and you have no ability to soothe yourself and you distort things, then that go, you, lead, you, you go down a road of, of abuse. Anyway, so let's look at sex offenders and that presentation. Actually, the things I'm about to say isn't really related to treatment, but um, 
Let's just talk about this anyway. So when it comes to sex offenders, uh, they tend to be found to be lonely, meaning that their attachments aren't going very, very well in their life. So this doesn't show causation, but it does provide speculation that when people sexually offend, one factor might be the fact that they don't have anybody to care about them. And I would say this is absolutely true. A lot of the famous sexual offenders were really quite lonely. And when you're lonely and you need attachment with other people and you don't feel like anyone's going to love you, sometimes you might turn to a sexual dominance as a um, proxy for just some attachment, some warmth with other people, even though it's incredibly dysfunctional, right? Sex offenders have higher rates of preoccupation than violent offenders who are non-sexual. So when you look at um, you know, violent offenders, those who have sexual offenses have higher rates of preoccupied attachment style, which I think is, is interesting. Insecure attachment is associated with coercive sexual behavior. Also, more research has found that a majority of rapists and child molesters had insecure attachment style, and child molesters were more likely to be preoccupied, according to another study. So sex offending is associated with insecure attachment, particularly preoccupied attachment style, and I think this makes sense. Uh, again, or not again, the, for the first time saying, uh, having preoccupied attachment style does not mean you're a child molester or that you're a rapist, but if you have insecure attachment style, particularly preoccupied, and I'm guessing disorganized as well, and you have a lot of other factors coming together, there's a greater likelihood of developing sadism as a what I believe to be a coping mechanism, coping mechanism for loneliness. All right, let's go on here. Okay, so let's look into addiction a little bit. I could do a whole deep dive just on addiction and attachment, and maybe I will do at one point. But I just want to briefly go over it. Early attachment injuries are associated with addiction later in life. Attachment insecurity is is related to addiction. This is something that has been shown time and time again. There's been a lot of research on it. It's fairly easy to research through either different interviews or measures of attachment. You can measure attachment insecurity, and then you also ask them questions about whether or not they have addiction problems. So you find out their attachment, and you find out their addiction. You you see if they're correlated, and a lot of times they are. For example, one study, Wedekind et al., 2013, looked at alcohol-addicted patients and found that 33% had secure attachment and 77% had insecure attachment. So this is compared to the regular uh, non-addicted population of people who are about 30% insecure attachment, 30 to 40%. So among alcohol-addicted people, 77% of them had an insecure attachment style. That really tells you something. And it makes total sense because when you suffer from in insecure attachment, your emotional regulation suffers, your life satisfaction suffers, your ability to have relationships that last a long time suffer. You probably have an unfinished business and unresolved uh, difficulties from childhood. It could even become more severe with flat-out abuse. 
And one of the easiest ways to cope with that is to drink a lot. And when you drink a lot, because it's an addictive substance, it becomes a problem over time. People end up gaining a tolerance. They end up drinking too much. They end up needing it to cope. And the shame spiral begins. You feel ashamed for being an addict, so you drink more, which makes you more of an addict. And you push people away, which causes attachment problems, which causes more use, and blah, blah, blah. Um, and there's been a lot of other studies too, but I'm not going to go into it. There's also a number of different child therapy techniques that use attachment, attachment-based therapy with children. And for whatever reason, attachment theory, it, I've, been, I've been using attachment theory throughout this deep dive as being mostly something that we could use with adults, right? I, I've been talking about childhood development, but mostly I've been talking about adult therapy, but really, in my industry, attachment theory is mostly used, the vast majority of time, is used for children, which makes sense, right? Because the kids need attachment. It's more overt during that stage. And if you can prevent attachment injuries and prevent attachment insecurity from developing or correct for it early enough, then you can avoid problems later in life for those children as they grow up. But it is a bit weird to me that if you just walked up to someone in my industry and said, uh, attachment theory, what sort of people do you use it with? I would guess that a lot of people would say, oh, you use it with children. And although that's great, I find that to be problematic because I think attachment theory should be used for, with everybody. These attachment-based therapy for children tend to focus on improving the attunement that the caregiver has for the children, which makes total sense, and also improving the child's self-esteem. So you're trying to work on the ongoing attunement, which will help in between the sessions, and you're also working to help the child's working model of self. These therapies also tend to focus on mothers and young children and, and not fathers. It's a product of our society that we tend to think of attachment between mothers and children instead of uh, parents and, and even fathers and young children. Um, often the mothers are the primary attachment early in life, but obviously not necessarily. So um, it's just a bit of a bias. Um, there's a lot of different types of therapies I could go into. There's one called Wait, uh, let's say Watch, Wait, and Wonder, developed by Cohen et al. in 1999. Um, some people use video recordings where they will record the interactions between children and parents, and then the therapist will bring the parents in to watch the video and sort of point out things about what the parents are doing well to attune. Some attachment-based uh, child therapists will do home visits and will help to... Um, you know, again, you're, you're, you're trying to coach the parents on how to attune to the children, which I think is a wonderful one and wonderful thing to do. And I've done this myself. Back in the day when I treated kids, I considered it the best thing I could be doing for those kids would be to help the parents attune to those children. Um, a lot of times what therapists will do in my experience anecdotally is when a child is having symptoms like they're sad or anxious or not doing well in school, and they're four, five, six, seven, eight, nine years old, the parents will drop off the kid because that's what the parents think they're supposed to do at the agency. And then the therapist does play therapy with the kid 
and that's all that they ever do. And that's wonderful, but I think, and in my experience, I found this to be true, the most rapid road to health, to health and to improvements and the best thing that we can do as clinicians is to, especially if we have limited time, is to work with the parents on their ability to attune to the children. And this requires watching them interact. You, it, it's one thing to talk with parents about how to attune, which, which can help, but it's another thing to actually be there with them because some parents will report that they're, they're attuning, and then when you watch them, you're like, oh, no, no, they're not actually attuning. They think they're attuning, but they're not. And it makes sense because a lot of parents grew up with, as children themselves, not having parents who are attuned to them. And so they might not even know what it looks like. And I found that to be true. A lot of parents have a, who come from abusive backgrounds, they almost have an, an impossible task of creating a healthy parenting style after having never seen a, a healthy parenting style. Similar is true for marriages. I find that a lot of marriages are suffering because they've never seen what a healthy communication exchange looks like. That's why I do a lot of role-playing in marriage therapy, um, or I'll just propose different ways of explaining things. Anyway, so that's what attachment-based therapy with children looks like. Um, just to go into a little bit more detail... Uh, I, I've I've worked with a lot of families, and just to give you kind of a typical situation, I, I used to do in home, and so I'd walk into the house, and it's interesting to kind of observe a family in their natural environment, right? Observe what the chaos level of the house is, how how noisy the house is, how many pets they have. All these things can interfere with a parent's ability to pay attention and attune to a child, and then. Um, you know, just getting down on the ground and saying, okay, let's all play a game. And I might even, after a while, just say, hey, mom, I, I just want you to play with your kids on the ground, do whatever you want to do, and I'll just sit over here and maybe I'll chime in every once in a while. But I, I just want to see how things are going so that I, I can see what you're doing well and, and maybe encourage you to in, in, increase that. Whenever you're doing parenting work, it's known that the best thing you can do is point out what they're doing well instead of try to change what they're not doing well. The idea is, is that, which is you know a behaviorist technique and a parenting technique for that matter, when you, it's much easier to, um, if you want to get rid of a behavior, it's much easier to replace it with a reinforced behavior. So you are watching a parent and you see half the time they are not really attuning, say they're overreacting, they're not really listening to their children, they have some sort of agenda, they are um, not paying attention to the emotional state of the child and they're, they're too task-oriented. And so those are bad parenting, non-attunement. But then the other half of the time, you see the parent uh, pay, paying attention to the child's emotional state reflecting the child's emotional state, letting the child direct the play, not overreacting, not being distracted by their phone, this kind of thing. And so in those moments, you want to say either during or after, that moment when you were playing with the putty and 
Johnny asked you to make a star out of the putty, and you said to Johnny that he seemed really excited and you really wanted to uh, do that for him. I really got the sense like you were really attuned in that moment. You were really paying attention to his emotions. You reflected his emotions, and you were really with him in that moment. You, you didn't seem anxious. You, you seemed like you were in the flow. And that's all you have to say because the idea is, is that when you say that, it increases the likelihood of that being repeated, whereas the things that the bad behaviors that you're not commenting on will just naturally go away as they get replaced with a amplification of the uh, good attunement behavior. So a lot of parenting work, PCIT, blah, blah, blah. There's a lot of work that can be done there. And for those of you specialists out there who do this sort of thing, um, you're doing noble work. It's very important that we do this. Okay, so let's talk about foster children and adopted children. A lot could be talked about here, but in brief, most attachment-based interventions for foster children and adopted children, they involve helping the parents, again, attune to the children, just like any other form of attachment-based therapy for families and parents. However, these children, these foster children, these adopted children, have often experienced significant mistreatment and attachment injury, which has resulted in the children developing defensive structures, insecure attachment structures that interfere with the parents' attempts to attune to the children. The children might have trouble trusting their foster parents or adopted parents. So when the parents attune to them, they're like, they don't really trust it. The children might be pathologically independent, avoidant of the parents and just be like, I don't need you. I'm okay on my own. The children might have trouble regulating their own emotions. In fact, that's almost universal. Uh, foster children, adopted children almost always have trouble regulating their emotions, and this is going to present a lot of problems. At older ages or even at younger ages, particularly if they have significant attachment disruption, they can the children can have really significant behavior problems. Uh, it, it wouldn't be uncommon for me to be working with an adopted kid or a foster kid who would very much scare and dominate the family with violence. Uh, there was one kid I remember working with him. He was probably, I don't know, 10 years old. And at night, he would get out of bed and he would do things to the house to uh, let the parents know that he was roaming around the house at night. And he knew that it would scare the parents because they were afraid of him actually killing them in the middle of the night and killing their their uh, biological children. And I think even once he would um, go into their room and stand over them in the middle of the night and uh, wait for them to sort of wake up and see him staring at them. And this was all, um, this all happened. This is all real. And you could imagine being a foster parent or an adoptive parent and just being like, oh my God, what have I gotten into? And any foster parents out there who have had a good number of foster kids knows that this happens sometimes. The foster kids are some of the most mistreated people on the planet, and they're much more likely to exhibit um, aggressive, sadistic, psychopathic behavior, and it's pretty scary. So you could see how you know people, especially at that upper extreme, it's going to be hard, even if you are attuned to those children, it's going to be hard to provide an attuned parenting style for them because the kids are either completely pushing you away or 
they don't care about you or they scare you half to death. So you actually have a hard time attuning to them. So one of the main things that you do with families like this, in my experience, is you have to increase the resilience of the parents. And you also have to help them with their commitment. So a lot of parents, by the time they got to me, adoptive and uh, and foster parents uh, of particularly difficult kids, by the time they got to me, they had seriously considered or even petitioned the state to take the child back. And some of these kids were adopted. They had been adopted, you know, for, for four years into a family. And then the fam, the parents are at their wits end and they're coming to me. They're just like, um, we need you to take this child back because this child is ruining our life. This child is ruining our biological children's lives. And um, although we love this child, we we can't do this anymore. We need more resources and there just aren't more resources. So um, we give the child back and it saddens us, saddens us to do this, but we just can't take it anymore. So the uh, important thing to do with families like this is to try to prevent them getting to that point by helping them cope and also giving them more resources like respite services and the like, and just give, giving them a chance to vent once a week, problem solve with them. I would sit down with these adoptive parents and we would go over, uh, you know, it, I would spend an hour just letting them vent to me. They'd be like, oh my God, you wouldn't believe what happened this week. You wouldn't have this happened and this happened, this happened. I'd be like, oh my God, it sounds really scary and, and stressful. And then we'd spend another hour talking about strategies about how to cope and how to approach that child parenting wise. And this is very important. Uh, a lot parents need this anyway, and particularly parents who have extremely difficult kids like this. So increasing their resilience is important because that'll keep the parents in the game and that will benefit the child because the child obviously needs a secure attachment and it begins with those adoptive or foster parents. The other thing that I would do is I would try to help the parents with their commitment level. You know, it there's two different modes there. One mode is just to inspire them somehow. I would praise them a lot of times. I would just be like, oh my God, you are doing so much for this child. And even though this child is not exhibiting any thanks or appreciation for you, you are potentially literally saving this child's life by providing a secure attachment. They've been through so many horrible things and they are going to have a lot of emotional issues and behavioral issues, but what you're doing is just so wonderful. I mean, that's just kind of one mode that I would go into with, with them. Because I really wanted these kids to have a secure attachment, and if the parents sent them back to the state, the child would go back into the foster care system and might not ever be adopted, and then God knows what, what that kid would end up being like as a result of that. Not It's not a doomed, it's not a death sentence or, you know, a, a sure sign that someone's going to become a horrible person, but uh, definitely increases the risk, right? The other thing that I would do, unfortunately, sometimes would be to essentially help the parents discern whether or not they actually wanted to keep the kid or not. Because some, it's similar to some couples will come to me and they will say in the intake that they want therapy to help them communicate and to help them improve their relationship. But pretty quickly, I realize that something feels not right. And so I'll just ask them flat out. I'll say like, well, how, what percentage are you in the relationship and what percentage of you wants to end the relationship? And 
a lot of times what will happen is one of the, at least one of them will say, I've been 99% done with this relationship for three years. And it's just taken me this long to admit it or to state it as such or something. And in those situations in, in marital therapy and couples therapy, then we enter a phase of therapy, which is to discern whether or not that person or both want to be in the relationship. Because until they decide that, there's really no point in trying to improve the relationship. Um, because if you're if you're breaking up with someone, you don't need to improve your relationship. I mean, if you have kids, you need to develop a working relationship, but you don't need to increase your sex life with that person or intimacy or whatever. Um, so, uh, so they need to, they need to figure that out. Um, and they can't really move on. I, I really, I don't know what to do with them until I know the answer to that question. So the same can, can be done. And I think it's important to do with, uh, adopted pa- adoptive parents who are wanting to give the child back because if the child uh, if the parents you know to help the parents with their parenting of that child that assumes that the parent is committed to actually parenting that child moving forward and until they have that commitment there's no point in really doing it and sometimes that situation ends um, with the adoptive parent saying, I can't do it anymore. I thank you for your help, but I just can't do it anymore. I, I've given it, I've given half of my life to this situation and it's only gotten worse and I need my life back. In the same way that I'll talk with marital couples and, you know, sometimes they'll just say, you know, I thank you for your help, Kirk, for helping us try to improve our relationship, but I just, I'm no, I've, I haven't been in love with this person for years and I, I don't want to be with them. So it's, it's rough work. Working with um, foster kids and adoptive kids is often extremely rough for people out there who do that kind of work. Uh, you know what I'm talking about. But again, the most important thing is to try to create an attachment, a secure attachment for that child, because whatever problems they have, are related to that and cured by that. But the problem with that is it takes a long time, right? That you get a 10-year-old who has been abandoned by parents who were in and out of prison because of substance abuse or something, and they've been bouncing around from foster care to foster care, and now they've been adopted by their aunt or something, and they are cutting and being violent and using drugs and running away and not doing good in school and talking back to the parents and not doing chores. And now you are tasked with helping the, to help, to help the child have some secure attachment in their life, primarily with the adoptive parents. That is going to take some time. Uh, The parents, even if they're perfect, the child will take maybe a couple years just to open up to the parents, let alone how long it will take for the child to actually have enough corrective experience for them to feel like they're worthy of love and that other people can be trusted. That's, you know, it's a big deal. All right. To end this chapter on attachment therapy, I want to talk about attachment therapy. Let me explain. Uh, I said earlier that there was a form of therapy called attachment therapy that is actually a unethical, harmful notorious form of therapy that was big in the 90s. So it's really unfortunate because these 
pseudoscientific, um, horrible people developed this therapy and marketed it as attachment therapy. And now uh, it's less so now because we're you know gaining some distance between us in the 1990s. Um, along those lines, you know, the new Captain Marvel movie is set in the 90s, and it's um, you know you're old when the decades when you were in your 20s are now fetishized. I was in my 20s in the 90s. Um, I mean, I remember when the 70s were, were really big. The 70s were really big when I was like uh, around 1990. The 70s were really big. Everyone would have 70s theme parties. And then by the time I was like 27, people started having 80s theme parties. And I was like, 80s? Why would you want to have 80s theme parties? Like, there's nothing good about the 80s. And then I, you know, grew, grew older and thought, oh, I guess you can appreciate the 80s. And I thought, well, surely the 90s are never going to be fetishized because what can you say about the 90s? The 90s was nothing, you know. And then all of a sudden now it's like it's far enough in the past where you can fetishize it. Anyway, so there's been enough distance between us and the 90s that uh, attachment therapy, when you say the phrase attachment therapy, there's a lot fewer people who remember this chapter, but let's get into it. Again, attachment therapy, 1990s, notorious. It's pseudoscientific, meaning that the proponents use scientific language, but they don't actually follow the principles of science, meaning that uh, you know, the principles of science are empirical observation, allowing your assumptions to be disproven uh, by um, observation, you know, I like one could have a a belief that psychodynamic therapy works for something, but until you, until you actually observe that empirically and demonstrate that it actually does work with something, then it's just your idea. And but pseudo scientific people start with the assumption and then they form the science to prove their assumption. And it's pseudo scientific because it looks like they're using science, but in actuality, they are absolutely not following the scientific method. Um, they might cherry pick studies. They might use anecdotal evidence or preliminary evidence, or they will downplay or ignore stories that challenge their claims. And it's often because these people are trying to make money. Pseudoscientific people are often trying to make money. All you got to do is walk into a crystal store and see how much money can be made when you trick people with your pseudoscientific claims. Not to say the crystal stores don't might, they uh, don't necessarily have something in there that is scientifically based, but a lot of it is not. So, and they'll claim science. They won't claim magic. You know, they won't say, this crystal harnesses the magic of J.R.R. Tolkien. What it will say is, these crystals have been found to blah, 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 and research is shown and they'll, they'll say those kinds of things. And, um, it'll sound, it'll sound scientific, but it's pseudo scientific. It is, it's like, um, cubic zirconium is pseudo diamonds. <laughs> um, also attachment therapy, uh, is not only pseudo scientific, but it's been found to be harmful and not effective. And actually some people have died doing it. So, um, we're going to look into it, uh, here. So attachment therapy uh, was mainly done in the 80s and 90s in the United States, and it was mainly used with adopted children. And it was, atten- it was intended to treat attachment disorders, so uh, the things I've been talking about. And it was 
it became popular or needed or something because in the 80s and 90s, there was an increase in parents adopting children from other countries like Korea or um, Eastern Europe, these kinds of places. There was a lot of kids being adopted in the United States. And a lot of times they had been adopted later in their childhood and had already incurred significant attachment injuries. And suddenly there are all these children in the United States who were exhibiting some very, very problematic behavior, either being completely avoidant and schizotypal and um, non-responsive to attachment, which is heartbreaking to parents, or behaviorally just off the hook, uh, violent, cruel, um, you know, drug use, uh, running away, just extremely uh, problematic. Temper tantrums at the age of 11, where they break everything in their room. It was very um, worrisome to a lot of people. And so in the 80s and 90s, the parents were seeking help. They're like, you know, help us. And then it was said, well, they, um, they have attachment problems. And there wasn't much out there that was going to help them. Because in the 80s and 90s, family therapy was just kind of getting off the ground. But even if you did manage to find a family therapist, they probably didn't necessarily understand attachment and probably did their best, but it's really hard to treat this sort of thing. And so whenever you have a a problem that doesn't, that that can't be solved by traditional or mainstream uh, clinicians, then that's when pseudoscience gets to, gets to creep in. Like with autism, for example, Autism is a, uh, if, you, if you've ever actually worked or have uh, known in your family or you yourself are autistic, then you know what I'm talking about. Most, if, you've, if you're out there and you've never actually experienced someone with autism, you probably have this idea that like autism is someone who's quirky like the Big Bang Theory guy. That you could argue is um, very, very, very mild autism. But the typical case of autism in the clinical world, world, you have a child who doesn't talk. You have a, a 15, I worked with a 15 year old kid who had autism. He had never spoke. He, he could kind of talk, but it was extremely limited. He was violent. He punched me in the face, just full on punched me in the face one time because he wanted to go for a walk and I actually had to uh, end my shift and I, I wanted to we had to go back to his house and I was like, Oh no, we can't go, you know, let's turn around. And without any warning, he just punched me in the face. Um, he would masturbate in public, not because he was a sexual predator, but because he just didn't know the social cues that that was actually something you're not supposed to do. And we actually had to train him to masturbate in the bathroom. He was, uh, he would become, he would obsess and become perseverated on certain things um, he had really hard, he had a really hard time with his emotions, very little eye contact, um, really hard to communicate with him. And in public, he would, he liked to touch people a lot. I mean, it wasn't the end of the world, but it, it's the, the real gestalt to it is that as a parent, it's, it's really hard to establish an attachment and a love relationship with your child when they have significant autism. It, because it's just so hard to reach them, emotionally speaking. 
And now moderate to mild autism, you can't, it's much easier to reach those people. But when you have significant autism, higher end autism, it's really hard to reach them. And it's heartbreaking for parents. And so the parents would bring these children to specialists. And back then, autism wasn't really understood. And a lot of people considered autism to be kind of like a temporary condition because some people would actually pull out of, of autism, so to speak, or they would have lesser symptoms later in life. So there was this notion out there that is somewhat true that with proper treatment or care from the parents, the child will eventually talk. They will eventually empathize. They will eventually be able to contact the parents. And so a lot of parents were like looking for these answers and they would go to mainstream clinicians and they would find very inconsistent answers and very inconsistent effectiveness. And so these parents were desperate and this is when a pseudo, lots of different pseudoscience got, you know, crept in here, including anti-vaccination stuff and, and other kinds of things. But, um, uh, well, actually, so let's go into uh, one of the alternative treatments, pseudoscientific alternative treatments that emerged. Um, it was, one was called facilitated communication. And this was, um, uh, big in the 80s and 90s in response to the increase in autism in the 80s and 90s and or the increase in the detection of autism in the 80s and 90s. And um, again, this is severe autism where the, the children would either not speak or barely speak at all. And there would, wouldn't be much communication between the, the parents and the children. And again, it was just heartbreaking. And so... Along comes these people who say they can bridge the gap between you and your child. They say, they come to you and they're, they're saying, I know how to reach your child through their symptoms so that they can actually communicate with you. So imagine if, if that you're a parent and you have this child who's 12 years old and you've never had an exchange with that child where you really felt like you, that you understood each other and you knew how much your child was suffering and and they had no, they couldn't respond to you. And so you just, you just really wanted to reach that child. And so what they would do, it was, they would facilitate the communication by, they would take the child's hands and they would put the child's hands on the keyboard and the practitioner would put down, put their own hands on top of the hands of the child. And so, so imagine that you have an autistic child, a 10 year old boy with his hands on a, on a keyboard of a computer, and then the, the practitioner has their hands directly over, finger, finger on finger on top of the child's hands. And what the facilitated communi- communicator would claim is that they can sense small movement in the children's hands, and then the facilitator would continue the press. So they, would, they could tell, oh, I can tell that the boy wants to press the letter H. And so I'm going to help him by assisting and facilitating the communication by hitting the letter H. And uh, what would end up happening is these elaborate, well-articulated sentences would come out of these children on the computer screen. Things like, hello, mother, I love you so much. Thank you for taking care of me all these years. I, I want to tell you how much I love you but 
I, it's hard for me to communicate that. Imagine if you've been waiting to hear that from your child your whole life, and, and then this practitioner comes over, and, and that's what you hear from them. It was mind-blowing, and people considered this form of facilitated communication to be a miracle. And it was, um, you know, really amazing. But what, uh, after a while, other people started looking into it and saying like, well, wait, this doesn't make a lot of sense because it's not that the children have some sort of inability to use their mouths or communicate. They, they aren't really in contact in the same way with the world as non-autistic people are. And so this doesn't make a lot of sense. I don't, you know, and so what they did is they did a study. They did several studies. And what they found was that um, uh, the children were using words and language and they knew things that the children couldn't possibly know, but were absolutely likely known to the clinician pressing on the kid's hands, right? (laughs) And uh, they also found that when they didn't allow the facilitators to look at the computer or the keyboard, and they just had to use their uh, senses, you know, to detect movement in the child's hands. Lo and behold, gibberish sentences would emerge from the child's, quote, you know, so to speak. Um, they also found that when the facilitated communication was going on, a lot of the times the child, the autistic child, wasn't even looking at the keyboard, whereas the facilitator was looking at the keyboard. So we're led to believe that these autistic kids have memorized the keyboard and know how to type, even though they've never done that before. Um, And they know how to spell and, you know, just all these weird things. And so they basically concluded that what was happening was these facilitated communicators were either uh, con people, you know, con men, con women, who knew that they were conning the parents so they could make money, or they were so in love with their approach that they actually believed that they had this special connection with the child and tricked themselves into believing that what they were typing was actually from the child and not from them. So, so anyway, um, a lot of things were happening along these lines. And so in the eighties and nineties, again, there was a lot, all these adopted kids. And so this pseudoscience crept in called attachment therapy which is a very unfortunate name. But there were a lot of other names that were attributed to this style of therapy or to um, similar styles of therapy. They were called holding time or rage reduction or compression therapy. All these names will make sense once I explain it to you. Rebirthing, reparenting, that's another problem. So sometimes I'll say, as I've been saying, therapists, we have to reparent these children and if I, talk, if I say that to someone of a particular age, say they're 50 and above, they'll be like, whoa, 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 reparent? Isn't that like this really horrible form of therapy? Because it harkens back to, these, to the 80s and 90s when they would use this, um, this style of therapy that, was, that would kill children. Uh, corrective attachment therapy, coercive restraint therapy, and the evergreen model. Personally, my favorite out of this list is the coercive restraint therapy. I think that's the most descriptive and the most accurate and the most clear and the most and the least likely to be 
confused with attachment-based therapy or reparenting therapy. Coercive restraint. Okay, so I'm going to refer to it as the evergreen model because, I don't know, it's just what a lot of people call it. So basically, it's meant to address attachment injuries, which sounds like a good goal to have. But at its core, the theorists believe that attachment problems are solved with the child experiencing extreme rage, and then uh, they hold eye contact with the caregiver. So basically, the people who believed in, in the Evergreen model, they believe that the child, the reason why they're having trouble attaching is because they have unexpressed rage. And so the clinicians would force situations on the children to make them extremely rageful because then through catharsis, through Freudian catharsis, they could actually become attached to the, to the caregiver. And it's a very silly notion. It's a very old notion. But that was the 70s when there was a lot of this sort of thing. So it was developed in the 70s, became popular in the 80s and 90s. Again, used a lot with adopted children with severe attachment issues and behavioral problems, and um, which makes it even worse because those kids already had attachment problems and this was a very harmful form of therapy. Okay, so what about the specific technique? Well, the sessions would be three to five hours long and the parents would often be in the session. So just imagine that. Five hours, as we go into the description, just imagine this occurring over the span of five hours. So the main thing that the Evergreen model did is you would hold the child without their consent. <laughs> um, again, sometimes it's called compression therapy or co coercive restraint therapy. So the parents or the therapist would restrain the child physically. So sometimes it was the parents, sometimes it was the therapist. Sometimes it was a, it was a team of therapists. And they would hold the child very firmly. They might even lay on top of the child. Sometimes both the parents and the therapist would lay on the child forcibly. Often, very quickly, the child would try to get away because they're being squished, right, and being held against their will. But the therapist would direct the parents or the therapist themselves would use their strength to overpower the child and not let them go. I think the purpose was to make the child realize that resist, you know, resisting was pointless. And I think that their hope was that the child would eventually just let the parents or the therapy affect them with, you know, it, it, I think it was like this attempt of like getting the child break. It's like breaking a child, like breaking a horse that you have this wild child and you need to break them so that they can be compliant. And the way that you do that is to, is to hold them down. So again, the child is firmly held or laid upon by the therapist and or the parents, and the child might be forced to have eye contact. So you're holding them down and then you're forcing the child to have eye contact with the caregiver. Now on a certain level, I can kind of see this working sometimes if it was used in a flexible way. <laughs> Because it kind of makes sense, right? If you were not held as a child and you were not loved as a child and you didn't have eye contact when you were a young child and you didn't breastfeed or blah, 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 then you missed a very important phase of life where you were very close and cuddly with your parents and you felt that physical warmth and you had that eye contact. And if you didn't have that, then you develop a defensive structure where you push people away and that basically denies you any future contact with attachment figures. And maybe by really just pushing 
past that, you can help kids to accept that. Oh, okay. I guess, I guess I can have eye contact, eye contact with this person. I can have physical warmth with this person, and it, I guess it does feel good. And I guess I can trust it. So sometimes it's a similar thing of when parents will hug you when you're 16 years old and kiss you, and you're just like, "Oh, come on, mom." I mean, it, it's a similar thing. You're, you're trying to send this message of just like. I get that you're a little squeamish about this and you're embarrassed, but I'm going to push past this and really try to contact you and make sure that you understand that I love you and I'm not going to let you get away. So I could, I could see this working with, with some adoptive kids, but it would have to be done with extreme care and it would have to be done without traumatizing the child. And it also has to be done without killing the child, which we'll get into in a second. Um, so that was holding. So it was holding, and, and sometimes it would get very, very severe. Again, you might hold a child down for five hours while they're just kicking and screaming and going crazy. And remember, some of these kids were adopted because they were being sexually abused by their caregivers somewhere or something. So you're potentially re-traumatizing them, or at the very least, just traumatizing. So that's holding. The other thing that this technique does is, is called, quote-unquote, reparenting which is not the way I was using it. And this is where the parent or therapist might hold the child as if the child was a baby. Even though the child might be 15 years old, you cradle the child in your arms as if they were a baby. And you, you look down at them as if you're cradling them or breastfeeding them or something. You don't actually breastfeed them, but you hold them, you know, that very cuddly, uh, submissive stance. And, the idea is, is that you're trying to give them that experience that they missed when they were an infant. Again, not a bad idea. It looks weird if you have a 15-year-old boy and they're lying and they have their their head in your arm and you're cradling them like a child. Um, if this is consensual and done in a right way, I could see it absolutely working. I mean, you wouldn't have to hold them as if they're infant, but you'll see kids with attachment issues with adoptive parents and otherwise will drape themselves over their parents' bodies and cuddle in that way. And I think that's, it's great. It's a wonderful way for kids to get that warmth and attachment need met. Um, but when I get into this, the bad side of this therapy, you'll see that like um, they would often take it in a weird direction and take it too far. Um, so there are, there are other, techniques in the evergreen model as well. I've read reports of therapists punching the children, not through countertransference mistakes, but actually like trying to get the child to to, to submit. And so the, the, the therapist would actually physically strike the children in the face or the therapist would lick the children. I have no idea why you would lick a child, but they would lick the children. Um, and lots of other weird stuff. I think, honestly, what was going on was there were probably a set of evergreen model therapists who were probably doing a good enough job with a bad form of therapy. But there were also a whole slew of other clinicians who were, I think, using the therapy as an excuse to abuse children, which is really sick, that some therapists would have some kind of bone to pick with children. And since they felt legitimized by this model, they would take out their aggression on children as we'll get into. 
Um, it's pretty awful. For example, uh, there are terrible accounts of parents following the Evergreen model and then beating their children. So not only clinicians who want to beat their kids, but also parents. Um, for example, David Paul Reese in 1996, he was a two-year-old adopted boy. So just remember that he's two years old, adopted boy with attachment injuries. And the mother was working with evergreen model therapists. And while using the evergreen model, which involved holding the child down, again, two-year-old boy, maybe even hitting him, uh, while she was using the technique, she actually killed him with the amount of violence that she did to him. And it went to court, and she claimed that the boy beat himself to death. <laughs> so, so that's that one. And then later, as they continued to interrogate her, she changed the story and said that she killed the boy, yeah, but she did so in self-defense. Um, again, two-year-old boy. So so this is, this is the evergreen model, essentially giving permission or encouraging this extremely abusive behavior from parents to the children. Now, I'm guessing the evergreen model clinicians would say that she wasn't really using the evergreen model correctly. Um, but um, let's dispel that defense here right now. So many children had died. Uh, Crystal Tibbetts in 1997. There's many children who have died. I'm just going to give you uh, three of these kids. So Crystal Tibbetts, 1997 three-year-old adopted girl. So remember, three years old, very small little girl. The father was taught to use the evergreen model and use the holding technique. And he learned that technique to lay on top of her and to um, provoke rage. So the idea is, is you lay on top of her, you provoke her to have rage and to try to struggle. You force her to not uh, get up and then you have eye contact. And the whole idea is, is that this will cure them of their attachment woes, which um, is not likely and not supported by science when they actually looked at this. But anyway, so the father was on top of her, laying on top of her. She raged. And the whole idea is, is that as you lay on top of the child, they eventually give up. That's the whole point. You want them to rage, and then you want them to eventually submit. Well, that's what happened. She raged, and then she eventually went quiet, and he was told that this meant the therapy was working. And so he was like, okay, it's working. But in actuality, she had suffocated and died. And the father spent five years in prison. Candace Newmaker in the year 2000, very famous case, 10-year-old adopted girl this time. She went to a two-week evergreen model attachment therapy intensive treatment. Two evergreen therapists wrapped the child in blankets and told her to struggle to be reborn. So this was a, another technique is the, the rebirthing. You might have heard this th form of therapy, but it's all related to this evergreen model. And so they would, and this was a common technique, is they would wrap the child in, in blankets or in carpet. They'd roll them up in a carpet, and then they would tell the child to, to struggle to be reborn. And so the child is freaking out. And then the idea is, is they emerge from being reborn and then, you hold them as if they're an infant. It was, it's very weird. <laughs> well, they wrapped her up in these blankets and then uh, several adults laid on top of her. And I'm sure you know where this is going. She raged and then she submitted. They didn't realize what was happening. She suffocated and she died. 
The mother spent some time in prison, and the two therapists were sentenced to 16 years in prison. Hallelujah. And there are several other accounts of other children dying. So, that, so when you hear the term attachment therapy, ask them, what are you talking about when you say attachment therapy? If they're just like, oh, you know, just using attachment therapy, then you're like, okay. But if they say, oh, you know, when you smother children to death, then you're like, oh, okay. <laughs> that, that, that very uh, horribly named thing. Because again, just think about this for a second. This is the most famous form of therapy that is called, this is perhaps the most famous form of therapy that uses attachment theory to the wider public. And it involves wrapping children up in blankets and, and telling them to struggle to be reborn while you lay on top of them. Or it involves parents forcing the child, provoking the child to be rageful and terrified, honestly, of being squished by several people and then waiting for them to submit so you can have eye contact with them, and then several of them die. Or it involves licking them or punching them and overpowering them and being sadistic as a clinician or a parent. Uh, That is what is associated with the phrase attachment therapy, which is just horrible and horrible. And as the time goes on and we start fetishizing the 2000s instead, we can put all that mess behind us and we can say attachment therapy is using attachment and therapy in a good way and not in this horrific way. All right, so that concludes that chapter on attachment and therapy. And uh, just to review what we talked about, going to the top of my notes here, we talked about what John Bowlby recommended he recommended that we we become secure bases for our clients. He recommended that we do have a number of different things. Uh, my version is based on attachment th- theory, but also interpersonal therapy and systems and a lot of other kinds of things. And the key elements are attunement, be very attuned to your, and I guess this applies to parenting as well, but while we're just on the, fo- on the thing of, of clients, be attuned to your clients, notice their emotions, reflect their emotions, be authentic, be real, be with them, um, uh, be sensitive, respond well. Number two is foster the attachment. Number three is provide corrective experiences, uh, mainly through reenactments and uh, relationship ruptures and countertransference transference. Number four is educate your clients about attachment theory. Number five is manage your own countertransference. And then I talked about how to use attachment for self-help. Number one, awareness of your emotions. Number two, awareness of how attachment triggers that emotion. Number three, using attachment-based emotional regulation. And number four, creating a lifestyle of those habits. And then I went went into a lot of different therapies that use uh, therapy, used attachment theory in therapy. And then we ended with a horrific form of therapy that killed children that claimed to use attachment theory. All right. Well, that does it for that chapter. Can't wait to get into the next chapter. Uh, and let me know what you think about this one. How do you use attachment in therapy? I'd love to hear it because it is music to my ears. Email me at contact at com or go to our website and use the contact us form. Please take care of yourself foster strong attachments with others because you deserve it. Mm